my name is Anna. Uh, you may know me from Power Rangers, Spartacus, Kevin in the Woods, Anger Management. Depends what you're into. And you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that isn't currently considering industrial action, but the night is young. I'm your host Craig and we are here for our monthly news roundup. We are going to be talking about trailers and news and bits and pieces that appeared during August 2022. And joining me for this is someone who is hopefully also not considering industrial action. It's Angus. Hello, it's your turn. Good evening. Yes, I'm quite pleased that we've now reached the end of the Edinburgh Festival season. <laughs> celebrating with all the other residents celebrating i was going to say clean streets but we have a very particular problem in edinburgh right now that won't bore listeners with but yes it's not quite clean streets but emptier streets i suppose yes (laughs) it was a bigger festival than usual this year because the film festival is part of it which is something i wasn't happy with i preferred the edinburgh film festival being in june rather than august because it seems to just get swallowed or drowned by everything that surrounds it at this time of year what was the reason for it being at the same time as the international festival I have no idea, but it's the same next year, so that's thrilling. Okay. I liked it because it meant that I sort of dipped in and out of various different events. I felt like I was kind of taking in things from different festivals day by day, which was quite good. It felt like there was a huge variety of things to check out. But I can understand why you'd want things to be separated and for for the film festival to have its own time in the year. The thing is, it's every other festival except the film festival that was typically in August, so... Even without the film festival being there, you would still had that, I suppose. I don't know how readily you dipped into the film festival. Not much. We went to see one thing. But as I say, it just felt like everything was going on at once, which was quite good in some ways. I know we like to complain as well <laughs> about too much happening all at one time. But I just meant that if you were fed up with the fringe, you could go do something at the film festival. Or if you've had enough of that, you could go do something at the international festival. Yeah, there was just a whole slew of things to choose from. I suppose between the fringe and the international festival and things, it's hard to tell the difference really, isn't it? Because they have always been the same time. Yeah, the lines are a bit blurred, so it's not always clear what belongs to what. Some people just call the whole thing the fringe and some people just say the festival and mean everything. But yeah, it was good. Yeah, I didn't understand the difference until after I moved to Edinburgh. It's just one of those things you find out, I guess, by living here. It's like, oh, the Fringe isn't the International Festival. Yeah. You just always think it's the Fringe. But I guess that's the internationally recognised name that people just know. It depends what you're into. If you're into like the arts or the drama or whatever it might be, that's probably what you'll refer to the whole lot as. Yeah. First up, we will chat a bit about what we've been consuming, what media we've been watching or otherwise consuming. You already said you saw something at the film festival, so what was it? It was a documentary film called 32 Sounds. Really interesting. The blurb in the programme obviously caught our interest. It was presented with live narration by the director. I wish I could remember his name now. Sam something. I'm sure that we can edit that in. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'll leave the ignorance as it is. Yeah, I'm happy to be identified (laughs) as an ignoramus. Yeah, but he was there narrating live and that 
forms part of his presentation of the film so as he's touring it around he's always doing the narration for it he was asked afterwards why he didn't just have a voiceover but he had a really good in-depth reason why he thinks that the separation of what you're seeing on screen what you're hearing in your headphones because it was partially through headphones partially through the cinema speakers and his live narration it sort of formed this whole soundscape that you were being treated to and it took you through these 32 sounds that he'd chosen to highlight through the film but also there was this kind of narrative that evolved through it as well. And there was a lot of exploration of the permanency of sound or recorded sound, what we're doing right now, your voice living on and being able to listen to voices from the past and hear from people who might have died a long time ago. And he had a really personal connection to that with his brother as well. It was a really interesting film and a really moving film as well. It was quite emotional. One that will be very difficult to translate to home release by the sound of things. He was saying it was going to be on streaming services eventually, wherever you can find these sorts of films, but not in the same way, not in the same sort of presentation with the live and with instructions about when to make best use of the headphones and when to take those off and hear along with everyone else. Interesting. What else have you been consuming? I have finished watching Better Call Saul, which I really enjoyed. A lot of people say... They prefer it to Breaking Bad. And I can't really tell because I can remember being really hooked on Breaking Bad when it was coming out week by week. And I suppose Better Call Saul was like that as well. It, it was released on Netflix. It wasn't all just dumped there. It kept you waiting each week. But yeah, it really built up and I think it was really well done, really stuck the landing. It was interesting to be watching something that's current as well because usually I'm <laughs> so far behind. <laughs> Which segues nicely into what else I've been spending a lot of time doing. I'm playing Metal Gear Solid 5 for the first time. Oh, wow. This is six or seven years old, maybe. I've had it for a while and just never gotten around to it. I've tried picking it up once or twice and never stuck with it. And now I'm deep into it. And that's not even percentage-wise. Time-wise, yes. In fact, I was doing it right before this record. And so, yes, a lot of my spare time is, is being spent on that. The thing I found about MGS5, a rare video game segue on a podcast, but the thing I found about that game is it's very repetitive. The thing I always liked about the Metal Gear Solid series was getting immersed in the story as well, but MGS5 really doesn't have one. Mm-hmm. It's just, do this mission for some reason, and then you get no real context as to why you're doing this mission, or what the aftermath of that mission is. It's just, you do stuff. Yeah, I am enjoying it. I agree with you. It is a lot like that. It's very, go here, do this, repeat. I haven't played as many of them i think i've only played all the way through the first one i do enjoy the narrative that comes with them but i'm also really enjoying just how weird and idiosyncratic it is as well so perhaps missing out on the story isn't so bad for me right now other games that i've been playing are quite open world or sandboxy as well so it seems to fit into that mode that i normally game in Kiefer sutherland is snake but he has no lines <laughs> yeah just sort of pipes up from time to time in a cutscene and the rare cutscenes which yeah. is again very unmetal gear like we'll get to see oscar isaac as solid snake at some point if they ever make that movie mm-hmm. it's still in theory happening but who knows anymore anything else been on your watch list I have something that I haven't actually started watching yet, but I was thinking I need to get into this because I remember talking about (laughs) probably a couple of years ago saying when they finally release Atlanta season three, I'm going to be on it. And it happened. It's on Disney Plus and I haven't started watching it yet. But I was like, right, if I put this on my list, then I'm going to have to start watching it. So the next time I can say, yes, I watched it all. So it's a few watches and a planned watch. Yes. That's your yep. month. My watches are actually down on previous months. It's just there's a lot of things that I watch aren't on at the moment. So in terms of new stuff, I've been watching She-Hulk, the new Marvel show. I've been enjoying that. Two episodes in at the moment. It's enjoyable. So I'd recommend that if you're into well, Marvel stuff. Mark Ruffalo's in the first and second episode. If you're into Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, 
you'll get to see him. And yeah, it's a good show. I'm not quite sure what it is yet, two episodes in, but I'm eager to see how it goes. Tatiana Maslany's really good in the lead role. It does seem to be heading down the route of it being, this is Ali McBeal, but with superpowers, which is a choice and an interesting one because it's doing something different with the superhero concept. It's a coat of paint over a typical type show, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't become that show yet, two episodes in, so we'll see. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting to try and explore different genres and put that Marvel twist on them. So yeah, I can see why they would be aiming to do that with different things now, rather than just more of the same, each show being quite similar to the last one. So it's good to have an angle like that, I think. To their credit, I think the Disney Plus shows have all been different enough from each other in terms of concept. They do usually come back to the standard Marvel flair by the final episode, as in here's a big fight in the middle of a location somewhere. You normally get to that point. One division is interesting for eight episodes and the ninth episode is red magic bolts versus purple <laughs> magic bolts, that kind of thing. The films where it's clearly genre, like Ant-Man being a heist movie, those sorts of things, when they change it up like that, that's when it seems to catch my attention. Because as you say, some of them all lead to the same place. And even that one does to some extent. But yeah, I like it when they try and put a different spin on it. Yeah, in Ant-Man they do the heist and then it's he fights uh, another guy with the same powers he has after the heist. <laughs> gotta go for that act three fight the bad version of yourself yep black panther it was interesting until the ps3 cutscene two black panther suits fighting and so on i'm not gonna be one of those people that says marvel is crap for this reason but sometimes i I get to the third act of something and i'm thinking did we have to do this (laughs) have the courage to change it up people might accept it and then if they don't just repeat it in the next one they must be making enough money on these things to be able to have an experimental one Every now and again. But even The Batman, which is by some heralded as the best film ever made, has that third act ending as well. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. It has to go into a big set piece and fight stuff or fight people and deal with a big situation. So it's everywhere. It's not just a Marvel problem. No. Another TV show I've been watching has recently just started. Star Trek Lower Decks, the animated Star Trek show with a comedic flair. And it's just as good as it usually is. Pokes fun at Star Trek, but in a very affectionate way. If you've seen Galaxy Quest, it's a bit like that, as in they make jokes where you sit and think, oh yeah, that's funny because I'm aware of that thing that happens. It's not, this is stupid because that happens. It's just that we all know this has happened. Let's have a laugh about it. That mm-hmm. kind of humour. Mm-hmm. It's a really good show. That's currently on, in the UK anyway, Amazon Prime. If you have Paramount Plus in the UK, you don't even get all of Star Trek on it, as I understand it at this point in time. Because of legacy deals. Good old Paramount Plus. A streaming service I will never get. The confusion I find around all of these streaming deals and where to find everything kind of leads into some of what we'll be talking about later on. (laughs) With cinematic universes and where you can find characters or stories spread across multiple platforms. In terms of movies, a couple of films I saw at the Edinburgh Film Festival. I didn't see that many because it was just harder to access stuff or it felt harder to access stuff and there was less stuff I was interested in but there was two that were definitely in my wheelhouse one was called Lola which was a found footage film about these two women prior to the second world war who invented a machine that allowed them to see into the future so at first they were seeing David Bowie and all that stuff and then they just started using it to predict attacks during the second world war and because it's a time travel-ish story, things spiral in ways that they don't plan. But it was really interesting. They cut in the footage of the two women dealing with the machine and so forth. And it was presented in such a 1940s film reel type way. So they were altering archive footage and inserting them into archive footage and things like that. It was just really well made and really interesting. And 
it's one of those compelling alt-universe, alt-timeline type things where it makes you think about, wow, if choices were made ever so slightly differently, we'd all be speaking German right now, that kind of thing. So if you can get a hold of it whenever it releases, definitely watch it. There's a review on the website. The other one I saw was an Australian horror called Sissy. It's a comedic horror. It's about this influencer who ends up meeting up with an old school friend, getting invited to her hen weekend and starts accidentally killing people. And I won't say any more than that, but it was really good. It was really fun. They both sound interesting. Yeah. Sissy should get a wide enough release. It's one of those things that will crop up in one of the horror streaming services at some point. <laughs> Something like Shudder or whatever. Maybe that's mm-hmm. the only one. I don't know. In the cinema, I watched Beast, which is Idris Elba fighting a lion. It was pretty good for what it is. It's delivers on that. <laughs> Just for two hours. 90 minutes, actually. So it's yeah. pretty lean. The perils good enough it's one of those things where you just have to accept that the lions don't quite behave like that and it doesn't explain why this lion is behaving off kilter with how you'd expect it to behave it's a bit like in something like crawl or whatever yeah alligators are not that aggressive or jaws <laughs> yeah or jaws but if you go in just expecting what you get out of it then there's nothing to really hate about it to be honest it's just <laughs> fine <laughs> it's a good example of what it tries to be ringing endorsement there's nothing to really hate about it but it's never going to be one of those things that's yeah this is the pinnacle of cinema it's never going to be one of those it achieves what it sets out to yeah and it does it very well yeah and it doesn't ask too much of you in terms of time because it's a lean 90 minutes it's over before you even know it that would also be appreciated so yeah again sounds interesting it's one of those if they added another maybe even 10 minutes to the running time it would tip it over the edge and be like oh, this this drags but it never slows down enough to drag you've got Idris Elba in it Charlotte Copley's in it as well he's usually good value whenever he appears and stuff enjoyable another one I saw is called Fall it's about these two women that get stuck up a 2,000 foot TV tower because they're idiots and decide to climb it that's an overly simplistic description but becomes clear very early on that this is a very bad idea. It's any of these films where people get stuck up something. The film will use cinematic language to show you why this is such a bad idea. If it's a mountain, it will usually show you there's a storm coming, so you shouldn't do that at this time. Or in the case of this, it's rickety. Every climb that they make, you can see stuff starting to fall apart, etc. It's a bit like a Final Destination movie at the beginning when they're doing the climb, actually, because here's a few examples of why this is going to go wrong for them. But it was, again, very lean and enjoyable. The characters are engaging enough. As someone that is deathly afraid of heights, it really dug into my fear of heights when I was watching it. I would recommend it. It is out in cinemas as we record this weekend. And I looked on certainly our local cinema website, Cineworld. I think they just have one screening a day. Mm. So it's one of those that's just been allowed to falter in the, the background. But it's been out in the US for a while. Is it a spoiler to say why they're climbing up the tower? Not really. I don't think it's in the trailer. Or maybe it is. Basically, one of them lost her husband in a climbing accident. So her friend decides, we need to get your groove back. We need to get you out of this funk. And the only way we can do this is by climbing something dangerous. Right, got you. Okay, so it's a kind of personal challenge to overcome. Yeah, it's about dealing with loss and yeah. doing that by doing something really stupid. Just climb this thing that's been abandoned and has been maintained for could be decades. Let's do that. That seems like a good idea. You have to put that aside because otherwise there's no film. As is the case so often. Well, for example, in 127 hours, that's based on a true story and the guy didn't exercise good judgment in terms of getting himself into that situation. So it does happen. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's it for my viewing experiences. Hopefully next month I'll have seen a few more things. It's one of those, because I've had such an intense workload in terms of TV writing and things like that. I've just been 
taking this time to just not worry about consuming media at such a rate as I've had to. So yeah, I've just been plodding along with a couple of things. <laughs> I thought I was doing okay just picking one really long video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've not thought about diving into a long video game. <laughs> one of these days I'll decide to just do that. Anyway, shall we move on to trailers? We have a few of those this month. Yeah, let's do it. First one up is Blonde, the Marilyn Monroe biopic that is being released on Netflix. Aaron and I, I believe, talked about a teaser for it that was released a couple of months back, but now we've got a full trailer. The release of it's not far away. So what do you think of the trailer for Blonde? Do you know a lot about Marilyn Monroe? I don't. I have to confess, she's never really been someone that I've had the desire to learn very much about. I guess she's always been there as this icon. I believe this is based on a novel. I didn't even know there was a novel. I don't know the novel. I mean, it makes sense. We've had a couple of biopics of some fairly iconic people recently, and so why not go for another one? And I didn't realise that Anna de Armas was in this, and I didn't recognise her at all. I have no idea if the voice is accurate or if that's an interpretation and because it's going to appear on netflix it's going to be very accessible to me this isn't the sort of thing that i would normally go out of my way to watch but as is so often the case if it appears before me on a splash page and if the person sitting on the sofa next to me seems interested in it then it could be something we end up putting on (laughs) (laughs) think about marilyn monroe is She's one of those people that was real that I can't quite believe was real. It's because the iconography sort of seeped its way into being bigger than she is. Mm -hmm. So you look at it and you're like, this can't be real. It's a bit like that with Elvis as well. And that's partly why I was disappointed with the Elvis biopic, because it leaned into the fact that he's larger than life. So it was less about him as a person and more him as an icon. Right. And I already kind of know a bit about him as an icon. So I I don't really need to have that reiterated to me. I would like to see beneath the icon. I'd like to see into that. And this trailer picks up on the idea of the Marilyn Monroe persona being suffocating. Marilyn Monroe isn't who she really is. It's a Mm -hmm. mask she wears whenever she performs and so forth. And it does play up in some of the iconic imagery that we know about, the billowing skirt Mm -hmm. and it's been ripped off in The Simpsons a few times. Happy birthday, Mr. President. That's her. Stuff like that. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays with that. I hope it's a biopic that isn't birth to death and I hope it focuses in on a couple of month period of her life or something like that i think the best biopics are the ones that this period of time defined them in a way yeah i would agree it's more interesting to pick a pivotal year or a few months or event and i'm sure yeah like you say they've got those iconic images that will be referenced and it's good to keep those in there for those kind of milestones those recognizable things that people want to see but yeah i would agree not to go start to finish give us an interesting slice of Marilyn. It looks like an interesting character study though. I am interested in the idea of I am not this person that the world thinks I am. That stuff appeals to me for some reason. So it could be breaking my trend of Netflix things and actually watching this, but then it might come (laughs) out and I'll just not do it. I'll still see it on that splash page and think I could watch that right now. And then, (laughs) yes, it's happened to me with so many. They just come and go. (laughs) I haven't seen Sandman yet, but I know a lot of people are giving it praise, including Andrew, who wrote a review of the season for the website. So thank you, Andrew, for that. And I'm not on social media very often, but as I understand it, the conversation for that just died almost immediately. No one was really talking about it at all. And that's Netflix's problem with, A, the volume of content, and when it comes to TV, their release strategy dumping it all at once which means that people stop talking about it a few days later yeah there's a kind of explosion of conversation and then it just disappears contrast that with she-hulk where people were talking about it in the lead up to it being released and 
we'll be talking about it every week now that it has been released because of how they're releasing mm-hmm. it. I guess Netflix have to decide whether they're going to stick with their binge model or get out of that because I don't think their binge model is really working for them. There must be some reasoning. For example, Better Call Saul was weekly and I enjoyed it because I do think that if you get 13 episodes of something just dumped there's that temptation to watch all of it but there's also that potential weight of too many hours of tv sitting in front of you so you're like i don't know i'm (laughs) I'm not going to start delving into this which is what's happened to me before when it's a weekly thing and you think oh i've got an hour every tuesday or whenever it was coming out then that's something you can commit to i know that other people will like that some things come out all at once because you can just binge it if you've got a whole day or a couple of days and that's all you want to do then there's no reason not to spend your time like that as well but i agree that it definitely changes the conversation changes the anticipation as well better console was airing on a network in the u.s whereas netflix just had the distribution rights right i assumed that must be the case no they just got the license to air it effectively yep which is once a week. It was the same with Breaking Bad as well. That was once a week on Netflix when that was in its heyday. And I believe Breaking Bad's leaving Netflix soon, which is hilarious because that's the reason some people have it. (laughs) Yeah, they're not doing very well. If you're only watching one episode at a time as well, I feel like you think about that episode more in depth than you would if you were just on to the next one. You don't need to wonder, oh, what's going to happen next? You just be able to find out. It allows you that time to appreciate how it's been structured as well whereas if you're binging it's difficult to tell where one arc ends and it just feels like a long film that you're watching rather than what should really be paced episodic content yeah next trailer if we can call it that is oppenheimer it's a very short enigmatic tease you get the sound of the countdown or a train approaching which suggests the inevitability of it it just tells you that it's coming Really? There's not an awful lot to say about it. We already know it's coming. It's being released the same day as Barbie. I know there's a big online thing about which one are you watching first? (laughs) I wasn't aware of this. (laughs) It's releasing the same day as Barbie. There's a big thing online about, whoa, will one hurt the other? Will you go and see both at once? (laughs) Is one of them going to move? That kind of thing. Mm. For me, it will be a double bill at the cinema on the same day, I would imagine. And whichever one I'll see first will depend on the timings. (laughs) So that's why I don't contribute to the conversation, because my response is really boring. (laughs) Yeah, it's a short trailer. It's ominous, as you would expect for the subject matter. It's got those Nolan-y sounds. It's got those Nolan-y effects. There's that focus on time and time ticking by and counting down and all the usual kinds of things you get with Nolan. On one of the teasers, I was getting imitation game vibes as well, just based on the subject matter, the war and the effort that went into winning it by whatever means necessary. Yeah. Do you think Nolan is upset if he gets told that he can't use a real nuke for filming? Yeah, I know that he'd obviously want to detonate several megatons of explosives (laughs) over a pacific island and will have been incredibly upset at not having been able to do that i'm going to need two in case i don't get the first take that i want (laughs) to no you'll irradiate the planet let's not do that for a film we need this to be a carbon neutral thing well we're gonna have to deal with the rubbish collection issue in edinburgh somehow <laughs> yeah, well, how often do we say just nuke it from orbit? It's the only yeah. <laughs> That's fast becoming one of the better options. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, not a lot to say on that. Next up, we have one of the Pinocchio trailers. We're having that thing again where occasionally you get two things that are exactly the same releasing at the same time for coincidental reasons. For example, White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen, or the two films about mall cops. 
one had Seth Rogen in it and a, the Paul Blart one. Oh yeah. They were about the same time as well. Wasn't there Deep Impact and Armageddon? Are they around the same sort of time? Yeah, that was a big famous one. And people say that Deep Impact's the better one. I haven't seen that recently enough to comment mm. either way. Mm-hmm. But no. I don't really like Armageddon that much, so I'd be willing to concede. <laughs> but with those, okay, I understand that a film about a mall cop and a Paul Blart mall cop is quite similar and also a deep impact and then also a, maybe a, a deep impact that was avoided but pinocchio and pinocchio it doesn't get more similar than that yeah. del toro's pinocchio looks really good it's proper stop motion animation i think it's probably cgi enhanced as well but you've seen pictures of him in production with the small figures and stuff that he's playing with so there, there is at least some traditional stop motion techniques employed i reckon the movement's all been enhanced with cgi and things because Otherwise, it takes you years to make something like this. Mm. You've seen the videos of them trying to make Wallace and Gromit and so forth. And it's like, well, we have 10 seconds of footage. It took us three months. <laughs> All we did was move Wallace's arm up and down. It looks good. The film seems about loss and companionship and dealing with loss through finding different companionship. In the case of the Tom Hanks Geppetto, he makes his own companionship. And it looks quirky and weird like del toro stuff typically can do wait is the tom hanks geppetto in this one or in the disney one that's a good question ewan mcgregor's in the del toro one (laughs) i've got them mixed up already you'd be forgiven for getting those mixed up yeah i have to be (laughs) (laughs) yes so the ewan mcgregor geppetto if it is even the name of the character in the del toro version because it's based on the actual original story rather than the disney film Mm mm-hmm well, yeah, I mean, it says that oft-used line in trailers, a story you may think you know but don't. <laughs> I like Guillermo del Toro, and I think that his slant on things will make this interesting. I like Ewan McGregor, I like listening to his voice, so hearing that in the voiceover was good. I wasn't aware that this was coming. I also wasn't aware that Disney's Pinocchio was also coming, so I was just like, <laughs> what is going on? I don't know what to think about pitting them against each other, because I like the idea of going back to the original material and telling that because i think most people will be familiar with the disney one but also the disney one is a really meaningful animation to a lot of people it's one of these older ones that everyone has seen and can't remember the first time they saw it but it's lived with a lot of us for a long time so there's really nostalgic vibes looking at that one as well but at this point in time i'm kind of leaning towards del toro yeah because it's going to deliver you something that as the trailer says you haven't seen before yeah And I've had issues with the Disney remakes of their own stuff, the live-action remakes of their own stuff in the past. I thought Cinderella was pretty good. I thought The Lion King was rubbish. Aladdin wasn't very good either. I didn't see Lady and the Tramp. That fell onto Disney Plus during the pandemic. Mulan I haven't seen, although I don't remember ever seeing the original either, so it wouldn't make any difference to me. I know they're doing Hercules. These are just going to happen. I think the... Disney Pinocchio looks all right, though. It's got that weird classic, so to speak, filter over it that you see in a lot of stuff that's set around about the time period this is set. That weird digital camera technique Mm -hmm. that sort of makes the time period look a bit otherworldly in a way. So it has that. But I like Robert Zemeckis as well, so I would have to hope that he has some kind of idea of what he's going to do with it. I don't remember the animation all that well. I have seen it, but I haven't seen it recently enough to know it word for word or whatever. The model for Pinocchio looks exactly like the cartoon, or as much as you can with a 3D representation of a 2D animation. Do you think that they ever dabbled or toyed with changing that until everything kind of blew up with Sonic the Hedgehog and they were like, oh no, just make him look exactly like (laughs) people want him to look? 
It's a good question, I wonder. There will be a point where he turns into a real boy, though, won't there? Yeah, and I don't really know how that's going to work. Presumably there's a child that will be playing the real boy version of him that they use to model the 3D model. Mm -hmm. I really don't know. I think my last encounter with Pinocchio was when I played Kingdom Hearts, of all things. (laughs) I can't tell you when my last encounter with Pinocchio was. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'm more interested in the Del Toro version because it will be hopefully bringing something that I'm not aware of. And it just looks interesting. Not that there's no effort gone into the Disney one, but it looks like there's a lot of effort gone into producing that, as in it's he's wanting to tell this story and he's wanting to do an old-fashioned stop-motion-y way. Mm. Not that there isn't craft in the Disney one, and obviously there's a big discussion about the pressure being put on CGI companies at the moment, these animation companies, because of unrealistic and horrible expectations that these major studios have. But Whenever Del Toro puts his hands on something, you know that he's got an idea that he's running with and there's a reason that he wants to make something. I'm not going to say it's always successful, but you at least know that you're going to see something that he's really passionate about, which may not necessarily be the case with the Disney one, because Zemeckis is hit and miss, to be fair. I think that the Disney is in September, beginning of September, and Del Toro's December. Do you think it will suffer for being second or will it catch that Christmas bounce? I honestly think the Disney one will be all but forgotten about by December. Yeah. So, no, I don't think it'll make any difference. Although the Del Toro one's on Netflix, isn't it? Good question. I don't have it noted down. Yes, the Del Toro Pinocchio will hit Netflix in December, but will have a limited theatrical release prior to that, apparently. Okay. Which probably means it won't be showing anywhere near here, because our local big cinema chain don't like to pick up Netflix releases, which is probably why they're going bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) No, there are many other reasons. I'm not going to get into a financial analyst type role on this podcast. I don't have the knowledge. Yeah, it's probably safer for us to just sit back and let other people do that. Yes, but two Pinocchio films this year, I might watch both of them. See how time goes. Probably by the time you're listening to this, the Disney Pinocchio will be out because it's out on Disney Plus Day, which, as you said, is September. September the 8th is Disney Plus Day, which is a few days after the initial release of this podcast, so it might be out by the time you're listening to this. Put it on anyway, because the trailer wasn't released that long ago. And it's interesting to pit the trailers against each other, put them head to head in this world of binaries. Yeah, and it definitely caught me off guard seeing those on the list. <laughs> <laughs> the next trailer we have is, again, we can't really call it a trailer, a teaser for Quantum Leap, which just suggests that history will be changed, or history isn't as we remember it, and... That's it. I'm getting a reboot of Quantum Leap. Well, there's not much to say on the trailer, but did you watch Quantum Leap? Have you ever experienced the TV show? No, I'm aware of it. I have seen images of it. I'm sure I've seen moving images of it, but I can't remember ever watching a whole episode. So there might be stuff referencing that in this short trailer. I don't think it gave away very much. It was kind of interesting to think about which historical events they might go about changing but yeah just because i don't have that relationship with the original i can't say that this really leapt off the screen at me no pun intended i've seen the odd episode of the original and it's less about changing the past it's more about making sure it happens in the way that it's supposed to okay so sam beckett will jump into the body of someone who's important or has a decision to make or has to do something important to make the timeline run the way it's supposed to kind of an interesting concept i suppose (laughs) don't change things Just don't mess it up. Have you seen the film Source Code? Yes. It's a similar idea. In that film, you've got Jake Gyllenhaal in there. He jumps into the body of just a guy on a train and he has to gather as much information as possible so they can not prevent the destruction of the train, but find out who did it 
And then it brings in all this stuff about alternate universes and stuff. And there was a Quantum Leap reference in that film as well. Scott Bakula does the voice of Jake Gyllenhaal's dad down the phone. So they knew what they were up to. Yeah, it was a deliberate homage in that way. But yeah. also they don't own the concept. <laughs> You've got here a note about that first episode won't be the pilot. Yes. This is something that concerns me. Yeah, I thought this doesn't bode well. Yes. So this comes from Ernie Hudson, who was interviewed. Ernie Hudson's in the show, which might make you interested in watching it. Yeah, I love giving him a call. (laughs) So it was very important. This is what Ernie Hudson said. It was very important for the network and the producers to introduce the show in the right way. The first couple of episodes are really important because as much as people looking forward to it, they also are looking to see you get it right. I'm just happy that if something isn't right, they're going to time to make sure that it is. So basically what it's going to be is you're going to get the first couple of episodes and then they'll show you the pilot, which actually isn't unheard of on television, although it's unheard of lately. Star Trek, for example, well, they did two pilots, but the second pilot was not the first episode to air on television. Hmm. So they aired a few episodes and then they did the pilot. But... In the case of Star Trek, it's just an isolated individual mission, so it doesn't really make a difference. So I suspect there'll be some kind of arc going through this story. So are they going to frame the pilot as a flashback? Well, when you've got time travel and leaping around, then why not just air it all out of order? <laughs> yeah, it depends how it goes, but it seems that jumping around and messing around with the scheduling of the show in that way isn't a great idea. No. I'm thinking back to Firefly when they did that. They aired that out of order. They aired the pilot last doesn't make any sense. So you get to watch this full show about a crew working and doing stuff and then they show you how they got together at the end. So we'll see. I'm interested enough to give it a go. I wasn't hugely into the original show, so I never sat and watched it all. I've seen bits and pieces of it. I like Scott Bakula. Of course, he went on to play Captain Archer in Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And they didn't ever make a Sam Beckett reference in that show, really. They did have Dean Stockwell in an episode, but he was just playing a guy. It wasn't anything special or significant. So I suspect they'll hook up with Sam Beckett at some point. They'll find him somewhere. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it'll be the way you think. I think they'll jump into a time where he was working on the project or something like that before he got lost in the time stream. So I don't think it'll be they find him and bring him home. I think it'll be they just get to him at an earlier point in his life or something. Or an alternate timeline where he never did it. Mm-hmm. So, Ernie Hudson, enough to get you watching it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm afraid not, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ernie. I'll let you know after I watch the pilot, three weeks in. <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have a short tease for The Last of Us, the first footage we've seen of it. It looks in step with the games. As far as I can see, they've recreated it accurately. I've mentioned before on podcasts that I'm slightly disappointed that they're just doing Joel and Ellie again because I feel like the game is a perfect representation of that story but now we're just getting it in a live action format rather than just telling another story in that world which they could have so easily done but it looks good and I will watch this. Yeah it's interesting because I take your point about retelling a story that a lot of people will be familiar with through having played the game but I suppose the idea then is that a lot of people don't play video games and if there are good stories in games why not take them to a less interactive format so other people can enjoy them as well? I haven't actually played through either of them. So could be convinced. I like Pedro Pascal and Nick Offerman. Good cast. Yeah, I'm usually too scared to play these games, so maybe I could watch them and get the story <laughs> that way. I could also watch you playing it on Twitch. I haven't done that in a while. <laughs> 
But you could watch any Let's Play on YouTube as well. Yeah, that's true. And you could get this story that way. But yeah, I'm happy to see some actors I like have a go at it. Yeah, the remake of the first game is coming out soon, which is another problem I have. I don't think you should be remaking a game that came out in 2014 or whatever it was. That's insane. Make a new game instead. Why not do that instead? But that's a different conversation. Judging by your delays in playing video games, you should be getting to The Last of Us pretty soon. (laughs) (laughs) It's on my slate for a couple of years down the line. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait for the news podcast where you're like, I'm playing The Last of Us. (laughs) Next trailer, we've got Goodnight Mommy, which is an Amazon Prime remake of a film of the same name. You've got these two kids that go to see their mum after she's had plastic surgery. Then she's acting weird, so they decide that he isn't their mum. Naomi Watts playing the mother wrapped in bandages for, you have to assume, most of the film. I quite like when Naomi Potts does weird roles like this. I think she's a really interesting actor and and stuff like this. Although the trailer started off well for me, and then it seemed to turn into one of those generic horrors with, here's some frightening imagery, here's something on fire, here's people screaming, etc, etc. These horror trailers that don't do the film any favours. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think same sort of thing. It started out capturing my interest and then I feel like it maybe was too long or gave away too much. I'd rather they give you the setup and just leave you kind of thinking, what's going on here? This is creepy. I need to know more rather than this is creepy. Oh, I'm seeing a bit more. And I mean, there could well be a twist in there that I'm not anticipating, but I feel as if quite a lot is revealed. It looks intriguing. It looks interesting. I don't know whether I'll watch it or not. We could ask Andrew what he thinks of it because he's probably seen the original. How old is the original? I don't know. That's okay. We can move on. (laughs) I just didn't know if it was another one of these ones. We've got a few mentions of things being remade maybe a bit too soon. Yeah. Goodnight Mommy is a 2014 Austrian psychological horror film. Uh, Okay, so we're getting the English language version of it now. Yes. So it's not an old film, but it's a English language remake. And the the turnaround time on those tends to be pretty quick. Uh Uh-huh. I don't want to be pessimistic, but usually the original's better, so maybe we should go and watch the original instead. I struggle with subtitles, so I will not be doing that. <laughs> Let's move on back to Netflix. We have Slumberland, a Jason Momoa Netflix movie. Looks kind of wacky and creative, quite fun. It's probably going to be pretty by the numbers, by the looks of things, but it's about playing around with dreams and things. I'm going to get crucified for this, but it looks a bit like Inception, but with more imagination. I'll join you on the cross because my note is Inception for kids. Yeah, because Inception, it's okay, we have a crashing car and we have people with guns and we have a (laughs) snowy avalanche mountain place, but we could have Ninja Turtles. Because it's a dream. You can yeah, it could be anything. Yeah, it's got similar stuff in there. It's got those dreams. It's got cities folding in on themselves and, and all kinds of fantastical imagery like that. So that's where I was thinking. The kids' version. Jason Momoa looks like he's having fun. Seems like he's always having fun. Every time he does something, he seems to be having a blast. And it's quite infectious, actually. Hmm. Next up is another horror-ish thing, The Menu. This looks really creepy. Not quite sure what's going on here. People are paying for an expensive once-in-a-lifetime meal and then... They get hunted after it. Do they know they're getting hunted? Why is the guy at the end so afraid that he gets a birthday cake? Yeah, I thought this looked like it had an interesting concept. Good cast. Something about the pace and the humour of the trailer I found a bit jarring, a bit annoying. It felt like it was kind of setting up another one of these creepy mysteries, horrors. You don't really know what's going on. It's really sinister. There's something bubbling away beneath the surface. I don't know whether or not the humorous 
asides and things like that in the trailer are a nod to the fact that it's maybe more of a black comedy or it's a bit more satirical than it seemed at first in the trailer that might be entirely down to the trailer and it not being represented very well but yeah it was another one where a bit like goodnight mommy where i thought at first I was kind of drawn in by the concept, but the longer the trailer went on, I thought, I'm seeing too much. I don't like the people joking to each other when they're supposed to be in a life or death situation. But again, that could just be, it's not very well represented in the trailer. It could be perfect when you see it in the film itself. It seems to be a vibe of setting a trap for the rich and then punishing the rich. I don't know if that's what they're getting at with mm-hmm. the film, but I got that impression, at least in some of it. I just don't understand the hunt aspect of it. Do they know that's the end result? Do they know it's a possibility? I don't know. Will you watch it? I don't know. That's another question. <laughs> will you find out? <laughs> Maybe someone will tell me <laughs> after they've seen it. Do you care about spoilers? No, just tell me. And then they tell me. <laughs> a bit like with old, I didn't bother watching that and someone just told me what the twist was. I didn't care about the twist and then didn't care enough to watch the film afterwards. I have been the same with a few films recently as well where I don't care enough to go and see them or keep it spoiler free so I will just listen to a podcast episode about a film that I haven't (laughs) seen if I just want to hear about it rather than spend the time watching it which is I don't know if that's lazy or if that's not giving art its due but it's been happening sorry we'll have a finite amount of hours on this earth and you just pick what you want to watch Mm -hmm. I have no problem with that in terms of this I don't know it depends what's going on at the time how readily accessible it is to me at the time Will it be Disney because it's Searchlight, so that's the Fox subsidiary or something, isn't it? Yeah, so it might turn up on Disney Plus. It depends if it gets a theatrical release or not. Right. In which case, it will be on Disney Plus a few weeks later, even if it does get a theatrical release. Okay. Because Thor: Love and Thunder is going to be on Disney on the eighth of September, which is almost no time since it came out in the cinema. Disney just seem to be, they're not allowed to skip the theatrical release for certain things, so they're just dumping it on the minute they can almost, which is a bizarre strategy. Again, that's another larger conversation. It used to be, you would watch a film at the cinema and it'd be a while before you could see it again. Mm-hmm. And it made that viewing almost special, didn't it? Because it's going to be a while before I can rewatch this. Yeah, and in some cases drove traffic to cinemas people would go and see things over and over again because that was the only way you could see it whereas with disney's strategy certainly with thor and so forth and doctor strange was i think 47 days after theatrical release it appeared Mm. on disney plus once people get wind of that it'll be do we have an expensive night out with the family or do we just wait and have a cheap night in with the family and watch it in two months Doctor Strange kind of surprised us when it popped up. We'd never really made it to the cinema because it just wasn't a priority. We knew it was on. We were thinking, we've got other things happening. Are we going to go and see this in the cinema? Do we have to get up off the sofa, (laughs) go out and go to the cinema because we're incredibly lazy? Then when it showed up, you're like, oh, well, it's here now. (laughs) Easy. You miss out on the big screen experience though. And I do think there's validity to that. But in this cost of living world we now live in, is it perhaps more responsible of Disney to be making things more readily available sooner for people that, quite frankly, probably can't afford to go to the cinema. Mm-hmm. There's a question. Again, it's a much bigger discussion that we may have one day, or maybe by the time we get around to it, it'll have all blown over and there'll be a conclusion. <laughs> That's what we would hope for, I suppose. Yes, wait and see. Next trailer, much lighter, Trick or Treat Scooby-Doo. It looks like it's a classic-ish Scooby-Doo story. It looks a bit fun. It also is quite referential, which I think is happening a lot with more modern Scooby-Doo takes. You had Scoob, for example, which was very on the nose referential to Scooby-Doo lore and so forth. So I wonder if that's just what Scooby-Doo is now, just one big reference to itself. 
Well, there's enough material, I suppose, that they just riff on it and it is what it is at this point. Yeah, I was surprised to find this actually, because the sequel to Scoop was one of the things, we'll talk about it later, Warner Brothers shelved for tax reasons. Hmm. Even though it was finished and ready for release, they're just not going to release it. But this one is, for some reason. Until it's not, or who knows anymore. Yeah, but it was maybe past that point of no return, as in they've already paid for it, the discs are printed or whatever. They'd already pushed the Oppenheimer button. <laughs> they copied it to the hard drive. <laughs> but there are also discs. The trailer does say look for it on disc as well. Physical media. Don't get rid of your physical media, guys. It's more important than ever, apparently, to just buy something and keep it and you can watch it whenever you want. Or local downloads. They're also possible. They're also useful. Such is my advice. The TV series for Interview with the Vampire has a longer trailer than we had before. I think before we had like five seconds or something like that. It looks very different to the Tom Cruise movie. I think it's probably more in keeping with the novel. I haven't read the novel, but as I understand it, the movie is quite different. I've also been told that this looks more in keeping with the novel. This novel that I haven't read, so it's second or third hand information at this point, but it looks good. I think it looks very intense. And do you know what it will be streaming on in the UK? No. Because it's AMC. AMC stuff tends to just be a free-for-all, doesn't it? Although Netflix get a lot of AMC stuff, I think. Mm. Or it could just end up on Sky. Yeah, that's true. No Christian Slater. No, that's true. That's a deal-breaker for me. Unless he has a cameo somewhere. I could be forced into watching however much of this there is, just to keep an eye out for Christian Slater. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember the film that well. I do remember enjoying it. The film doesn't mean a great deal to me. When I have seen it in the past, I have enjoyed it. But I certainly wouldn't watch this and then be annoyed that it wasn't exactly what the film was. I don't know if anyone will be like that. Maybe people will be just pleased that there's more Anne Rice content. Yeah. It almost looks like they ran it through the template for prestige drama, though, doesn't it, in terms of this trailer? Here's some racy imagery, here's some violent imagery, here's some portentous speeches, all that stuff. It looks in keeping with a lot of prestige fantasy adaptation stuff I've seen, at least in terms of the trailer. They weren't breaking any new ground, really. No. (laughs) It's one of those things you can watch a showreel of trailers for stuff that services or networks or whatever want you to watch, and you'd almost struggle to find the difference between them if you watch them back to back without any title cards or anything you know what one's this don't know as is so often the case when we're doing the research for this podcast (laughs) is this the vampire one it has people biting people so could be the vampire one equally it might not be could be a zombie one could just be people biting people i don't know could be disney's pinocchio (laughs) definitely a del toro's pinocchio though Our next trailer is Netflix series that unfortunately will be dropping as a full binge because this actually seems like something I'd be super into. Wednesday Adams. It's essentially Smallville, but in the Adams family universe. As in Wednesday Adams is at school solving problems and fighting demons and villains and what have you. I think this looks really good. Tim Burton's involved in some way and the likening to Smallville is even larger because the creators of Smallville are also involved in the show. So it seemed to have those fingerprints all over it in that way. When I was watching the trailer, I was thinking I was a bit disappointed when she ended up going to the supernatural school because I would have actually preferred a story about Wednesday Adams trying to adapt to a normal school, as in putting piranhas in the swimming pool and things like that, just having to learn. You can't do that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because I thought exactly the same thing. All the setup in the trailer was about her being a fish out of water, not a piranha out of water. <laughs> being the oddball, that's kind of what the Adams family is. They're the spooky family, but they're 
making their way in the world today. Not going to Cheers. Then it kind of turns into more of Hogwarts or Umbrella Academy or Magic School kind of stuff. I thought it had a good look. The Tim Burton connection gives you that kind of spooky pedigree. But yeah, I don't know if it is just more of a magical school setting, then it's less interesting to me, I think. A different version of the show is she's at a normal school and supernatural stuff attacks it now and again, and she has to deal with it without being caught. Which is, again, just Smallville, but with Wednesday Adams, I suppose. Are the Smallville connections enough to endear this to you i'm interested enough to watch it and i think jenna ortega is a good choice for wednesday as well she seems to be doing really well in the trailer i think wednesday adams is a difficult character to play because she is very stoic Mm -hmm. so to play that with still having personality you get that bit where she half smiles at the end of the trailer and things like that that seems to me that she gets it She understands that there are ways to push it in either direction to actually convey some kind of emotion out of it. And she's actually played by a Latina actor for a change. There hasn't been that many live action versions of Wednesday, but it seems to forget the fact that her dad is Luis Guzman. (laughs) It's race accurate casting, I suppose, in that way. But Jenna Ortega's pretty good. I've seen her in a few things. She was in the most recent Scream movie. Mm -hmm. I'll give this a watch, definitely. But again, I wish it wasn't all dropping at once. Because it would be something I'd maybe be interested in reviewing, but the fact is it's going to be all at once, so now I'm not interested in reviewing it because it'll just take too long and I won't be able to dig into it in the way that I like to dig into stuff, so it's just not going to happen. I might just watch it instead. Just watch it and enjoy it. (laughs) Just watch it for fun, perhaps. (laughs) At my own pace. (laughs) A novel concept. Maybe I'll do what I did with the Resident Evil series and watch one episode and think, that's enough. Well, there's also that possibility. You don't have to watch all of it. Yeah. Because the Resident Evil series, it's already been cancelled, so is there any point in me watching the rest of it at this point? But the first episode didn't grab me enough to think, yeah, I should watch the second one. But no, this one, it could be good. I would quite like it to be a throwback to a almost bygone age of television, as in the Freak of the Week type story. She's just mm-hmm. at school and has to deal with weekly threats. The Buffy, Smallville type formula. Depends if you're into those kinds of shows, I suppose. At one time, I don't know if I have as much of an appetite for them now, but it's not to say that they don't have a place or an audience. Yeah, well, I think this will be aiming at a particular type of audience, and that audience may engage with it. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. It's not too far away. The next trailer is one that dropped on the day of recording. We haven't found out what has dropped five minutes after we finish recording yet, as usually happens, but it's weird. I think it's still called Weird the Al Yankovic story, where Daniel Radcliffe plays Weird Al Yankovic. It's another biopic. We talked about Blonde earlier. This is another biopic about how a man decides. I'm going to change the words to songs that already exist and be really famous for doing that. I've listened to a fair amount of Weird Al music. I've heard him on podcasts and stuff. He seems like an interesting guy. Obviously, he's kind of in some sort of hyper reality because it seems like he's an outsized sort of character. And so it's being told in that sort of way as well. I don't think it's going to be 100% true to life. I could give this a watch. I like Daniel Radcliffe and I like Weird Al enough to check out a movie about him. Yeah, it was a in my teenage years thing, making mixed CDs of random Weird Al songs or random other changed lyrics to other songs that were attributed to Weird Al when it wasn't him. That was a thing when you would perhaps get your music through unscrupulous means and people just labelled anything as Weird Al and it wasn't necessarily. I definitely feel that because it was a sort of time possibly pre-YouTube or before a lot of music or covers or just anything was on YouTube and there was no Spotify or anything so you just kind of download or rip a load of stuff not even know (laughs) the provenance of it 
it was a bit like the wild west of getting a hold of your music because I don't ever remember seeing any physical copies of Weird Al music. To me, it was all in that weird early internet space. (laughs) (laughs) He obviously released albums, but I don't think I ever went looking for them. No. Listeners who are younger than us, look up Kazaa. That's all I'll say. (laughs) That'll tell you everything you need to know. At the time, I don't think it even occurred to me that he would have CDs or possibly even tapes back in the day. It was so weird to think that these songs were just floating out there and and if you grabbed the right one, you'd maybe stumble across something that you would really like and be listening to for years to come. Well, I remember being really surprised with Tenacious D when I found out they were actual releasing recording artists (laughs) as well. Because I got hold of Tribute and I thought it was just some silly internet song. Yeah. That was that bygone age. In terms of Weird Al, I knew nothing about him as a person, really. I didn't know anything about his connection to Madonna, if that's even real. I guess it must be if it's in this film. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about where he came from or how he managed to achieve prominence. This film seems to be built on the premise of he came up with the idea of changing lyrics to possible songs, which can't possibly be true. (laughs) He just somehow managed to monetize it. He harnessed it with the help of Rain Wilson in some (laughs) strange get-up. Yeah, but I will give this a watch, despite my reservations about Daniel Radcliffe, who's someone that I can't really stand to watch in anything. No, I find him quite off-putting for some reason. There's just some actors that whenever I see them, I just think, I don't like you. (sighs) There's him, Miles Teller, other we had the conversation about Miles Teller when we saw Top Gun. <laughs> I like them both. I can see why people might not like them for different reasons as well, but I will happily watch films that they appear in. The question is, where will this appear in the UK, if anywhere, because it's a Roku original, which is apparently a thing. <laughs> we might have to go back to Kazaa to get it. Maybe. <laughs> Could be that bygone age. That's how we can find it. The last trailer is one that should have been on last month's list, but I forgot to add it to the list, so it's on this one. But it's actually probably better that you get to talk about it anyway. So it all works out. Clerks 3. You're a big Kevin Smith guy, as we established on a previous news podcast. So what do you think of this? Yeah, well, he's given me hours and hours and however many cumulative weeks or months of podcast enjoyment and the extended viewisk universe as well. Tell him Steve Dave. I still listen to that podcast more often than Smodcast now. There's a real balance for me because I love the nostalgia of going back and how much he really celebrates his roots and what got him going and that he's got a place for all his friends and everyone he's worked with well most of the people he's worked with those he still gets on with that can come back and kind of celebrate what it was to make this indie movie that kicked it all off and the other side of me thinks he just dwells on it far too much and this has been all encompassing for far too long but he's made a success of it he has a massive audience he's got loads of people that are really into it as well watching this trailer It really makes me want to go back and watch Clerks again. I've been meaning to do that. Every time we talk about Kevin Smith, I think I need to go back and watch it, dig out my physical media and and watch (laughs) that DVD because there is just something really charming about it. And I think that it is probably his best film. I do like his other work as well, but there's just something really charming about the original. There's issues with diminishing returns with Clerks 2 and there will be with Clerks 3 as well. But despite that, I will watch it and I will enjoy it because we're all growing up and we've all been there. We've all had those jobs. We might still be friends with people that we worked with back in the day and can remember working for very little money and those kind of conversations that he summed up. People kind of talk about it as if it was revolutionary, putting in geeks talking about Death Star contractors and that sort of thing. I'm sure lots and lots of people have had those conversations, but he managed to kind of capture it at that time and it kind of took off for him. That's a bit of a rant, but (laughs) all that to say, I'm looking forward to it. I have reservations, but I think that whatever 
it comes to. I'll always side with him in the end. When I saw this trailer, I ended up not being at all surprised about what the film's out because my recent encounters and some of those are actual in-person encounters with Kevin Smith when he was at the film festival a few years ago at the Edinburgh Film Festival. You can listen to the roundtable interview on the podcast feed where I was one of two people that got to ask him a question when he just rambled so long that the PR was pulling their hair out because they couldn't get a word in edgeways to stop him. And he was late for introducing screenings of his own film. That's just the way he is. You can't shut him up once he gets started. But I do find that he seems to be constantly reminiscing about this film, reminiscing about that period of his life that led to the creation of Clerks. Mm -hmm. And now he's making a film that's about the creation of Clerks, as in the film is about the characters in the film making that film. Yes. (laughs) Is this a full circle moment for him, or is it more than that? I don't know, but I'm not surprised that he is making the film about him making the film, in effect. Yeah, I think that it's almost this sort of crystallizing of everything that has happened since. Every conversation and every podcast he's recorded since then has always come back to this moment or this time in his life. So I feel as if I've seen this film already just from having listened to (laughs) him reminisce over the years. That's not to say that there isn't a place for it. It has its audience. I also feel it's kind of fitting that I should be rambling on when when it comes to answering a question about Kevin Smith. (laughs) It is making me think I need to go and watch the original again. <laughs> <laughs> so it's already achieved what it's set out to do in a way. By yeah. Even the trailer just being as referential as it is, it's made you think, I should revisit that. Yeah. Which is probably what he wants you to do in a way. I haven't seen the latest Jane Silent Bob movie. I haven't seen that. I just don't keep up with the films as much as I keep up with the conversation. I don't know, it's different because you're getting more of that from the source. But I quite often... I'm questioning why are we talking about this again or why are we (laughs) back to interviewing people that you knew at school when you were writing it or coming up with the idea, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think he'll probably be a bit reflectional as well because his heart attack was not that long ago. Mm -hmm. So he'll be aware of his mortality in different ways. Yeah, even more so. It sort of doubled down after that. Like I said before, I'm kind of a nostalgic type as well. Not to that extent, but you've got this kind of double nostalgia with it because you get all of the nostalgia of the years and years of Clerks material and watching the original over and over again. But then you also kind of reflect on your own life and that's what good art should do. You're seeing yourself in it. So it gives me a chance to think about all those times. And the character in the film as well, he's stuck in a rut, isn't he? He's still in the store. There's the the idea of just never moving on from thing you felt trapped by which i think a lot of people can relate to when it comes to kevin smith films you almost don't pay attention at whatever the prevailing review consensus is because you're either going to engage with them or you're not i think he occupies Mm -hmm. this weird space i know when he was at the film festival he was talking about people's reaction to clerks like film students and things talking about to make clerks you broke every single rule that i learned about and you were successful. That resentment that some people have for that reason, because he just had no idea what he was doing, made a film. And it somehow resonated with people for various reasons. So I think either on the Kevin Smith train or you're not. He brought yoga hosers with him to Edinburgh the year he was here. Mm-hmm. His introduction actually primed me to enjoy the film in a way that I might not have had he not been there. I might have reacted right. differently if I hadn't heard him self-deprecating himself, saying, maybe it sucks, but... I wanted to make this and I had fun making it and maybe you'll enjoy something about it. And that was it. And I watched it with that mentality and ended up enjoying it a lot more. I haven't seen it since and I'm almost afraid to watch it again. (laughs) Just ring him up and get him to introduce it for you again. That'd be great, yeah. Kev, I'm just going to watch this film. Can you prime me? (laughs) (laughs) I'll definitely see this however it appears. It's not too far away either. Clerks 3. More Kevin Smith. Can't keep him down. 
Okay, we are out of trailers. We have used them all. We can now talk about other stuff. Let's start with our three typical pillars. We had a bit of a fourth recently with Star Wars, but it's been pretty quiet on the Star Wars front recently. So let's start with Marvel, which is of the one thing, which is that we now have a director for the Fantastic Four movie after John Watts left because he was knackered after making three Spider-Man films and decided, I don't want to make another superhero film so soon. So he left. Now Matt Shakeman from WandaVision is stepping in, which seems to be a good choice. As far as I'm concerned, he did good on WandaVision. He's directed episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia as well, which is something I've never seen. But people say that he'll be a good fit because of that show. Because I guess of the eclectic cast and dealing with a cast like that on that basis. I don't know. If you've seen It's Always Sunny. I have seen a lot of It's Always Sunny. People always recommended it or said, oh, you have to see this. I don't know if I entirely vibed with it. There were bits that I liked. It wasn't all for me. I didn't get along with it as much as a lot of other people seem to. But that's not to say there isn't good stuff in it as well. So there's definitely promise here. And Fantastic Four, I suppose, being one of these prestige Marvel properties, deserves some good treatment. Assume that your impression of WandaVision gives you a good idea of what you might be in for here with fantastic four well it's difficult because one division is one of these strange anomalies or at least most of it is as in we're replicating classic sitcoms very deliberately and playing around with that and having fun with that which i don't think fantastic four will be i have said before that i would quite like it to be a period 60s movie as in they get transplanted from the 60s to the modern day in some way with maybe most of the first film being set in the 60s a bit like captain america as in most of that was set during world war ii and then he gets transplanted but he keeps being off his time but in the modern day, they could do that with the Fantastic Four as well. I don't know if that will be the case, but the One Division sensibility is there in terms of giving the film a bit of a 60s vibe could work there. I don't really know what his theatrical filmmaking credentials will be like. And Marvel are doing a weird mix at the moment, as in of hiring named directors for projects mm-hmm. like Chloe Zhao, for example, or Sam Raimi, and letting them put their stamp on it to some degree, whereas this seems more in line of what they were doing before by either promoting somebody in-house to do something or just finding a director that had done a couple of small budget indie things, which is what happened with John Watts, funnily enough. He came from Cop Car and did Spider-Man, which is a massive jump. And in your Hollywood career, you should be more, or at least it used to be, you would maybe do a mid-budget thing in the middle somewhere just to cut your teeth on that before transitioning to the big-budget stuff. But it just seems like they're skipping that and... I know that Marvel do a lot of in-house moving things around in order to support that, as in we'll do the action sequences, don't worry about that, just handle the directing stuff that you know about, which is, I think, both a good thing and a bad thing. I don't think it's necessarily the stifling of creativity that some people think it is, but at the same time, I also think it's a bit limiting. I forget who it was who was originally up for directing Black Widow, and she was told, don't worry about the action sequences, we'll handle them, and she said, well, why would I want to make this film if I didn't want to make the action sequences? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Fair point. Yes, that's a good point. We want you to make this action film, but you don't have to do the action. Okay. What am I doing then? Takes all the fun out of it. Any scene where characters are talking, that's all you. Any time where they need to fight, that's all us. I don't know about that. So we'll see how it goes. He did have the job of directing the fourth Kelvin Timeline Star Trek movie, which has already been announced that he won't be doing that due to scheduling conflicts with Fantastic Four. But that film is even more of a mess than you might think it is because when they announced it, all of the cast came out and said, no one told us we're doing this. <laughs> That's not a good look. But they're still moving ahead with this project. Presumably Chris Pine is sitting there thinking, I'm supposed to be in this film and no one has told me anything about it. <laughs> we'll see what happens there. It's the year 2050. The MCU has entered phase 
45. The DC Universe has announced another 10-year plan for films and a fourth Kelvin Timeline movie has been announced. <laughs> the cast still don't know anything about it. That could be what we're looking at here. But yeah, I'm happy they're making a Fantastic Four film. It's something I really want to see. It'd be nice to see a good one. Although I don't mind the Chris Evans ones. I think they're okay. It's going to have to fit in with everything else that's going on around it, so it will be of a piece with those, surely. We need to wait and see what the film is actually going to be before making determinations whether we think it's going to be any good or not, because all we know at this point is they are making a Fantastic Four film. <laughs> cool. Let's hop over the fence to DC, which is far more of a mess. Let's start with the cancellation of Batgirl, which is something that I was really annoyed about when I heard about it, because this film is finished. It's been completely filmed. I guess they still have to do some post-production work on it, but they decided to shelve it. It's this big thing about the merger between Discovery and Warner Brothers, where Discovery bought Warner Brothers, and they want to cut costs massively. So one of the reasons for shelving Batgirl, which cost around $90 million to make, is for tax reasons. They can write it off if they cancel it now and never release it. It's a massive slap in the face to everybody who worked on it. And the funniest thing is, it's the one with a non-white female lead with non-white people behind the camera as well an even worse look and kind of incredible to think that so much effort could go in to a project and that a tax write-off is the studio's best option or according to them their best option for what they can do with all of that footage and all of that effort and time i believe they have to prove that they're never going to screen it anywhere to be able to say we're not planning to make anything of this or make any money from this in order for it to work as a tax write-off but of course with however much of it or the vast majority of it having been completed people will want to get their hands on that i wonder if it will leak that'll be interesting I'm sure there's a few disgruntled people, although I believe that the directors have already been cut out from accessing it. Is that right? Yeah, there was a thing about they went to try and salvage some of the footage or something like that, and they found it had been deleted from the server that they had access to. But there's also talks of screenings within Warner Brothers of the film. The current CEO, he can't seem to say anything right at all. Everything he says is just worse than the last thing he says. One thing he talked about is we wouldn't release a film we don't 100% believe in. And you just have to look at the track record of stuff and think, well, that is utter crap. Did you believe in Suicide Squad? Not the Suicide Squad. That was good. I mean, Suicide Squad. Mm -hmm. Not even just DC films, just other Warner Brothers films that have been utter dreck. And there seems to be stuff coming out now about how Don't Worry Darling might not be very good. There seems to be stuff coming out there or at least big bust-ups between the director and the cast. I haven't read too much into it, but... It seems like the narrative is starting to flip on that one, which is interesting because one of the articles I've linked here in the show notes is that Warner Brothers can apparently only afford to release two films theatrically this year, which is Don't Worry Darling and Black Adam, because you're not going to keep The Rock out of cinema, apparently. (laughs) What a mess, because they've pushed back Shazam, Fury of the Gods and Aquaman and The Lost Kingdom to next year because they can't afford to release them this year. And then there's all this talk about them trying to save however many billion in costs has ended up costing them about five times that amount. (laughs) Yeah, it just seems like some incredible mismanagement is going on for a film studio to not be able to release more than two films. (laughs) Over the next... (laughs) four months crazy Batgirl was one that was looking really forward to seeing we were going to be seeing Michael Keaton back in the role like I said it was a non-white female lead Leslie Grace was really good in In the Heights which is I think the only thing I've seen her in I like the Batgirl character I've read the comics that they're basing the film on as well they're really good it had a prominent trans actor and trans character in the film and I think she put out a Twitter thread that was quite heartwarming or heartbreaking however you want to look at it in terms of 
her involvement in the film and, and how disappointed she is that it will never see the light of day. It's going to be this curiosity that's going to be sitting on a hard drive somewhere that no one will ever see. It seems a bit too high profile for them and just never release it at this point. Yeah, it seems like a shame for whatever legal wranglings they're going to have to do. I'm sure the, the lawyers and whoever else will try and make sure it never sees the light of day. But stranger things have happened. And on the other side of that, you have the Flash movie where your lead is going around assaulting people. But apparently we're still committing to a theatrical release of that. What is going on over there? I think in terms of the Flash movie, it's one of those financial juggernauts that they've spent so much money on it that they just can't not release it at this point. Uh-huh. As in, so much money has been spent carving out theatrical release distribution and so forth that they have to push the button on it at some point. It's a bit like what happened with No Time to Die, where it being delayed so much and the delay was costing them so much money that it just had to come out in cinema. There was no other option. Right. Yes, it's a sort of murky, mysterious business, all this. At what point is the tipping point? We committed this much money, we're willing to write it off. We've committed slightly more money, or perhaps a lot more money. We have to force it into theatres. Whatever happens there. But apparently, at some point, the story has moved on since then. They were considering three options for the Flash movie. The first was the preferred one, where Ezra Miller seeks professional help, and then does some interview of some sort to explain their behaviour. The film will then release with Ezra Miller doing limited press. The second option would be to release the film without Ezra Miller being any part of the press for it whatsoever. And the third option is to just shelve it and bin it. And it seems like the first option is what's happening because Ezra Miller's been talking about apologising for their behaviour and and seeking help. So we'll see what happens there. It will come out one way or another, but it's a massive, massive mess. Mm-hmm. And even adding to that, despite the fact that they have no money, they somehow managed to pay Matt Reeves to sign up a multi-year first-look film deal. <laughs> well, he seems to be doing quite well out of all of this. <laughs> yeah, he's co-writing The Batman 2, and I guess he's going to get to do other films. I reckon it'll be a one-for-them-one-for-me type deal that a lot of directors do, as in I'll make uh-huh. one of your superhero things and then I get to make whatever I want. Yeah, and uh, studio language along the lines of we'll lean into whatever Matt wants to do. As a director or as an artist, that's got to be quite encouraging to sign a deal like that. But at the same time, we've mentioned the chaos going on elsewhere. Yeah, but added to that is they also want to craft an MCU-style continuity, or maybe not continuity, but they want at that level of planning, which seems to run counter to Matt Reeves doing his thing, because I don't think the Batman's going to be your jumping-on point for a shared universe, because I can't imagine any other character existing in that universe that Robert Pattinson's Batman inhabits. Could you imagine him hanging out with Aquaman, or Superman, or anybody else? (laughs) No. (laughs) It's part of the issue with it, or it's part of my issue with it. But they are apparently going for Dan Lin, who produced It... Sherlock Holmes, Lego franchise, and stuff like Aladdin and so forth. So he's going to be your, or at least he's in talks to be the custodian of the next 10 years of the DC universe until a year or two passes and they decide to throw that out the window and start again, like they often do. I mean, it doesn't seem like they're set up to do a shared connection of any kind with these films because everything they've got in coming out seems to be different to each other, which I don't think is a bad thing. You have Joker 2, the Batman sequel, Aquaman Shazam, Black Adam, they're all different and they've gone for the lack of connection in DC, which again, I think is a good idea. So maybe it's just someone to keep an eye on these things and make sure everything is ticking along. But then why do you need one person to lead a franchise in that way if it's not connected? Just because the lot over the fence are doing it. Yeah. It's a bit all over the place. There was a rumour that Greg Berlanti was going to be considered for it because he already did that. 
just on TV. He created a successful shared universe on television, so we could get him to do it on film as well. But that's not what's happening. Or it might not, I don't know. Dan Lin hasn't been explicitly confirmed yet, so it's all still up in the air. But equally, next month I could be saying something completely different to what we're saying this month. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's so changeable that it's pretty difficult to comment on. We can only really discuss what's happening as of right now. Yeah, next month it'll be Batgirl's releasing, but you have to buy it from the Warner Brothers website or something. And it will be unfinished with rough effects or something like that. <laughs> Slightly more positive news for DC, though, is that Ben Affleck is apparently going to be appearing in the Aquaman sequel. It was revealed on Instagram by Jason Momoa himself. Yeah, and he'd already said he wouldn't be coming back but he is coming back my confusion begins here you can hear me at a loss for words of how many batmen we've got going on at one time <laughs> minus a bat girl so keaton affleck pattinson shared but not shared universes and cancelled films as well and experiences on films and everything surrounding movies for ben affleck driving him to drink or driving him to dangerous places and then thinking i'm never going to do that again and yet coming back so i don't know yeah but he's married to j-lo and they have donuts so he's fine now (laughs) well that would make anyone feel better (laughs) and j-lo too i haven't bought into aquaman really so i'm really not invested and i don't feel as if i've got a whole lot to add on the fact that ben affleck's coming back for it the first aquaman's good I think you said before you hadn't seen it. That's still the case. Yeah, it's still fun. So I hope the second one will be as well, if we ever get to see it. Does Amber Heard and Johnny Depp weigh into all of this madness that's going on around Aquaman and the wider DC, everything we've just been talking about? There was some speculation over maybe doing something about Amber Heard, as in cutting a lot of her role or trying to refilm the scenes that she's in or something like that. But it just seems like, nah, we'll just go with it, it's fine. We'll just leave her in it. And then when we make another one, she won't be in that because it's one of those we've spent a lot of money on this already and these scenes are filmed and it's more just trying to break the association in a way yeah oh it's all so messy so you won't see her doing press for it i would imagine but i don't know it depends a bigger role she has in the film as well it might not be a super big one she's quite prominent in the first one and then she was in the snyder cut as well she's also in the joss whedon cut of justice league so who knows but it doesn't seem like they're that bothered about the fact that Amber Heard is in this movie. We've <laughs> <laughs> got bigger fish to fry. And I'm always someone that tries to separate the art from the artist as well, so I just try and forget about it when I'm watching these things. I also try and do that, but it feels like we've got kind of a snowball of things going on around <laughs> all of this right now. It's pretty difficult to ignore. And the thing about Ben Affleck as Batman, he's definitely in the Flash movie. As is Keaton, so we'll get to see that at some point, <laughs> and then he'll have a role in Aquaman, whatever that role will be. It just seems like anything you're watching at the moment from DC is not important because they're going to throw it out pretty soon anyway. This Flash movie, for example, after you watch it, you know that the direction after that is not going to be whatever this film sets up. Mm-hmm. It's just a curiosity, I suppose, isn't it? And in a way, that's fine because it used to be we'd go and see even a franchise film like a superhero movie and not have to worry about them doing anything else after it. So I suppose (laughs) on that score, it's just a Flash movie. But it's also a bit of a shame if Warner Brothers throw out a lot of this stuff connected to these things that they were wanting to do. The Sasha Cali Supergirl character was supposed to get her own TV series at some point, which probably now won't be happening. Hmm. You've got all the Superman projects that they were thinking about making, the Ta-Nehisi Coates one, for example, the Michael B. Jordan one. Are they gone? Probably. <laughs> there's this big thing about HBO Max cutting back on scripted content and moving more to reality based content. So that means mm-hmm. that a lot of the stuff that I might want to see will just be binned 
yeah, that's not good. But again, we'll have to watch this space or listen to next month's news update. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned because we will be following this. There's another thing as well, the Batman Caped Crusader animated series, which you might have been on a news pod when we talked about it before. There's also the Superman one that was being announced at the same time that isn't mentioned. So whether they've just mm. quietly cancelled that or not. But I think this one was further along in production. They've announced it won't be on HBO Max anymore. Initially, they'd said that they'd cancelled it, which was incorrect. But it's too far in production, weirdly, to just cancel it, even though Batgirl has been filmed. But this, they're shopping it around other streaming services and places like Apple and Netflix and maybe Amazon are interested in it. And I was just thinking to myself, okay. imagine Disney Plus bought the rights to screen this. <laughs> Could you imagine a Batman series on Disney Plus? <laughs> I still had it down as being cancelled, so it's good to know that it might have a life somewhere else. And yes, I believe we did talk about it on a previous episode where it felt like we talked about just about every iteration of batman that there could be (laughs) the people involved in it i'm interested in because it's bruce tim and so forth again who made the animated Mm -hmm. series so i'm always interested to see what he's up to let's jump over to our other pillar the cw first of all i'm going to pop into the speed force to check on andrew he's probably packing his suitcase to leave the speed force as we speak so if you want to amuse yourself for a few minutes i'll go check in on andrew and see how his packing's getting on okay will do Andrew, you're here too. I assume you are packing your things to vacate. That is some size of suitcase you brought with you. Well, as anyone who has listened to our podcasts on this TV show over the last few years might have gathered, I have a lot of baggage (laughs) to do with it. We all have. Who would have thought the Speed Force is a bit like 10 Downing Street, as in when you're done, you have to leave? Topical references. Topical references, absolutely. Yeah, so what's happening is The Flash is... Finally finishing with season nine. Season nine is going to be the last and it's going to be a shorter season of 13 episodes. So there we go. It's finishing. What do you think of this? Well, I think the fact that it is finishing and the fact that the final season will be a shorter one are both very, very good things that make me do happy noises and breathe large sighs of relief. Because for some time now, this has been a show that I pretty much always only watch out of a sense of begrudged obligation than any real investment in its developments. Similar to how I sometimes felt about Supernatural during its lesser periods. But Supernatural would always claw you back, wouldn't it? It would always remind you of why you liked it. Exactly. Whereas this has not. Yeah, at no point has The Flash ever redeemed itself. It just started getting worse. And kept getting worse. It's like in The Simpsons. I did. I saw the whole thing. First it started falling over, then it fell over. Yes. And I think the best thing that you can say about its progression is that it has stagnated, maintained a certain level of distinct mediocrity and not got any worse than that. Yeah, that's true. It hasn't got worse. I guess it's more of a cumulative thing, though. Just when you see the same low quality over and over again, you get more annoyed at it. So when you see finale after finale that is essentially just the same thing, dressed slightly differently, then you just get a bit sick of it. And that's where we're at. Remember when we did a special podcast after Arrow's ending was announced? Me, you and Chris, we had to log on and express how upset we were. I do remember that, yes. Very well. This is a rather different sentiment as I express it, this news. Yeah. Deadline have reported that Grant Gustin is obviously returning. Candace Patton and Daniel Panabaker are set to return. Jesse L. Martin will be around for as many as five episodes, which is almost half the season. So it's one of those, Mm -hmm. 
is he really leaving? That doesn't quite count, does it? It's like in Star Trek Voyager when Neelix left, quote-unquote, with two episodes to go and then appeared in the finale. So it's, no, we just had a couple episodes that Neelix didn't show up. No one noticed the difference. That's quite common. Or indeed, fairly recently on The Flash itself, when Carlos Valdez left, and then Cisco reappeared like two episodes later. Yeah, I'm sure he'll turn up for the final episodes at some point. This would have had more of an impact if he'd actually been gone longer. Yeah, it doesn't say anything about what's planned for the final season. I imagine just a lot of nonsense, as usual. It'll be a lot of incoherent, rabbling nonsense, where the characters continue to not learn any lessons and weird made-up stuff. I mean, it's all made up, but weird stuff that makes no sense just keeps happening and then there'll be some kind of explosive finale that will make even less sense and then the show won't be on anymore. Yeah, that all sounds pretty feasible to me because that's pretty much all that we can expect from it now. Pretty much, yeah. It's not until next year. It doesn't say when next year, but it's early next year at some point. I'm guessing it'll hit in January when the the usual mid-season stuff kicks in. And it will, as I say, only run 13 episodes. One question I have, though, is do you think they will try and wrap up the Arrowverse this season as well? Since we now know that Superman and Lois no longer exists in the Arrowverse when it used to. They just decided now that it doesn't. And this is the last one standing, so... Do you think they'll try and do some kind of finality for the universe itself? That didn't actually occur to me. It would be nice if they did, I think. Though I'm just not sure exactly what they would be able to do that would give that sense of finality, but would also work within the context of the show itself. Unless one of the plot lines involved by bucking up the timeline and having to go back and fix it and giving an excuse to revisit the universe's greatest moments. What, again? Yes, again. <laughs> By this point, would you really be surprised that the Flash writers recycled ideas for one final time? Not at all. I never really thought about the whole, maybe going back and celebrating the best moments, I suppose. That is something that tends to happen in final seasons. I'm thinking about the Supergirl final season that didn't really do that, but I think they couldn't really do that because they were working under COVID restrictions, especially in the early part of the season where it was just existing sets, very few guest stars, so they didn't really have an awful lot of opportunity to jump around and and celebrate itself. Yeah, I think with having more freedom in filming now, it would certainly be less complicated if they wanted to do that. Though, again, I'm just not convinced they could in any meaningful or satisfying way. No, but I suppose with it being the only game in town, they could quite easily get guest stars because you don't need to shut down production on other shows or fight for actors' time and things like that. So Melissa Benoist could turn up for a guest star appearance in an episode. Stephen Amell could turn up for a guest star role in an episode. Any of the Legends actors could turn up again, possibly in a monitor. You'll have Sarah explaining, oh yeah, we've been in prison for a bit. Don't worry, it's all fine. We're all happy now. Yay. That's how Legends will end, with a video call. Yeah, well, given the treatment that the show received it in the end, that should be kind of appropriate. It won't even be Sarah that turns up, it'll be Brandon Routh. Oh yeah, I was having drinks with Nate and he told me that they all escaped prison and they're fine and they're all living in random time periods, just all happy. So don't worry about that. So everything's fine. We'll just pretend there was one big blowout ending where everything's tied up neatly. But you don't need to worry about it because we won't give you any, any details. It wouldn't surprise me if they do some form of event-type crossover situation. I think it would be easier for them to do it now. Like I said, the actors aren't bound to anything in terms of their own long-running shows. They might have projects coming up. We know that Melissa Benoist has something coming up where she plays a journalist or something like that. Girls on the bus. Yeah, that's the one. Where she plays an actual journalist that will be doing 
credible journalistic stuff, unlike in Supergirl. <laughs> to be honest, I only actually remember the name of it because we actually briefly discussed it the last time I was on a news podcast. And the only reason it was actually there was because she was in it. Yeah, pretty much. I'm very transparent in the way that I put these things together. <laughs> what are they going to do in the final season? Anything with perhaps like the Crisis on Earth Prime. Yeah, they might do that. I feel like Reverse Flash will make his triumphant return because he has to. Of course, because there is absolutely no other way. If this wasn't the final season, then he might have stayed gone for a bit longer. But since it is, we'll have to bring him back a final time. If only to have Tom Cavanaugh choose some scenery for a little bit. To be honest, that's actually been one of the highlights of the show. Just having him turn up and just be set loose on set. Yeah, this article doesn't announce any other actors, but I presume that Brandon McKnight and whatever her name is that plays Allegra will be back. Can't recall her name offhand. Kayla Compton, that's her name. So she'll be there. I imagine Cisco will turn up for at least an episode to say goodbye. What other lost cast members? There's not really any, is there? Maybe Wally might come down from his Zen mountaintop to Dane the Mortals with a visitation from their prophet. Nah, don't be silly. Wally's the last character they want to bring back. I assume the kids from the future, they'll be back. Undoubtedly. I reckon the season will possibly end with them trying to tie up with those two timelines. It'll maybe end with their birth. That would be my guess. Or one of them, anyway. Because they're not twins. Bart's a bit younger, isn't he? Yeah, which the show very heavily pushes by him being pointedly more immature. Yeah. Uh, nor having to be the big sister when he's around. So there's lots of possibilities. None of them that are that exciting. Although I have to say I would love one more Cara Barry team up. Yeah, I would like that. Because they are fantastic together. If they know what's good for them, they'll really push to try and get that done. I know that was talked about as being something they regretted when Supergirl was ending. They wanted to have one more Supergirl-Flash collaboration of some sort, and they couldn't make it work because of the COVID situation. They can now, in theory. Yes, and they wouldn't even need to bring any dimension hopping into it this time, since Kara now lives on the same Earth as them, even though that affected absolutely nothing in any way whatsoever. No, dimension hopping was no problem. You just press a button and you're there. (laughs) That was the thing about Crisis that confused me at the end, where it was we merge these worlds because it'll make it easier, but it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't make it any harder either. Yeah, it just didn't change anything. Yeah, it just wasn't a problem. I mean, we had all these wide-eyed theories about maybe the Flash team can fight more aliens and stuff, because that's commonplace on this world. No, alien refugees only live in National City. Nowhere else. Exactly. Everyone's fiercely territorial in the Arrowverse. They don't step one foot outside their city unless it's a special occasion. Exactly. In the same way that racial tensions only exist where Black Lightning lives. Forgotten the name of the city. Freeland. Freeland, that's it. Nobody hates black people anywhere else in the US other than Freeland. Nope. But again, that was part of a merger as well, wasn't it? I'm sure Black Lightning will turn up. That's our joke, isn't it? That's our ongoing joke. He... Shows up especially where he isn't welcome. And quite often to help people he doesn't know. Exactly. Just turns up to Oliver's funeral. I think he seemed like a good guy. Why are you here? Although not to be sweepingly negative about it, I do think that it's a bit of a shame for the crew that worked on this show for probably 10 years, if you include all the COVID delays. You hear about people losing their jobs, essentially. It's never a good thing. All this mess that me and Angus have or will talk about, depending on where this shows up in the edit about HBO Max and all the people just getting shafted for their work. This isn't quite the same thing, because at least they're getting told you're going to have another few months of work before we shut down production, and it's a planned end of production, and anyone doing those types of jobs will be aware of nothing lasts forever. A TV show commitment won't last forever. The fact that they got 
nine years out of it, ten years out of it is probably a blessing in of itself, as in, we've got to do this for ten years. Who could have thought? Yeah, if I'd ever had to take a punt on which of the Arrowverse shows would end up lasting to the end, it would not have been this one. No. And Grant Gustin seems committed, in a way, to what he's been doing. I mean, you'll never get a straight answer from him on how he feels the quality of the scripting has gone and stuff like that, but he's capably led the show for a long time, and the cast have always been good. They've done wonders with some pretty shocking material. (laughs) That is one of the few positive things I think you can say about the show, is that even though a lot of time what the characters come out with is absolute nonsense. They still express it with utter sincerity, as if it's incredibly dramatic and wordy dialogue that demands you sit down and pay attention and absorb every word, lest you miss a single one of them, and so be robbed of the nuance of these great speeches. It's utter nonsense, but they make you believe that they believe it, and I think that's commendable. Yeah, they take it seriously. They do their jobs. They're professionals. I suppose that's the bare minimum of what they could be expected to do, but they could have got away with phoning it in for the past few years. Would we have really minded? Although I wouldn't say I would necessarily point to any particular performances that have been given over the last few years and call them exceptional, with the exception of Daniel Panabaker believably playing two people in the same scene a lot of the time. She did that so well, but I don't think I could point to any particular moments probably since season one, and say, yeah, that was a great scene. That was a great bit of performing between two actors. Yeah, there's certainly nothing that leaps out to me about it that I could say that about. No, definitely not. I guess the last question I have is, who do you think is going to host the rewatch podcast that will appear in 10 years of the cast? Oh, right. Sorry, I thought you were dropping some plan that you had on, on me. Oh, God, no. No, I will not be doing that. What are you talking about? No, I'm not committing to 200 episodes of television rewatching as weekly podcasts, no. The current trend of actors who were in shows some years ago, basically lining their pockets by rewatching the show and talking about it. Which Flash actors do you think will end up doing it? My money's on Candace Patton and Carlos Valdez. I think they're the two. That's what I was going to say, yeah. I would doubt very much it would be Grant Gustin because... As you say, he's being very circumspect about the objective quality of the show's writing, and so I doubt it's something that he would see any merit in revisiting. I mean, in 10 years, it's usually quite a few years after the show ends that they decide to do this. Although it's a uniquely lockdown phenomenon was where it started, because you've got the Scrubs one, you've got the Star Trek Voyager one, there's tons of others as well. Smallville. Yeah, Smallville, which has only just started. They're a few weeks in. I get to bring in my theory that maybe Michael Rosenbaum will leave that podcast after he's finished for the seventh season. <laughs> as, as mentioned to you, it would be so incredibly meta if that were to happen, and also hilarious. Tom Welling now does it with Cassidy Freeman. <laughs> That's many years away before they get anywhere near that. But yeah, Candace Patton and Carlos Vadez, they'll probably do the Flash Rewatch podcast. Possibly calling it Flash Time or some other pun or something to do with the Speed Force. I would be surprised if the podcast Flash Time doesn't already exist. That's a very good point. Do you have anything else on the Flash finishing? Or can I let you get back to your packing? Remember, we've got a long time. We've got probably close to a year before we need to worry about getting kicked out of the Speed Force. Nothing more specific to say about it. Just to reiterate that I'm relieved it's happening. Because... I think it's long overdue. We can look forward to a news discussion where we celebrate the fact that Gotham Knights is ending after nine seasons. God, don't. We haven't seen a single episode of this show yet and we've already kind of written it off. (laughs) Well, that's because of how 
unendurably terrible it looks. There's no way that's surviving the CW acquisition, the Warner Brothers shenanigans. There's no way that's going to be... Oh, Christ, no. The thing that's still standing when the dust settles. To be honest, I'm surprised it hasn't already been ditched. I can't see Superman and Lois and Stargirl making it out of their current seasons. Well, their next season. Yeah, I would be very surprised if they did. Which is a shame. What is Neil Before Blog going to cover for the future when all these shows get cancelled? I'm sure we can find some other plethora of nerdery to obsessively analyse. Might need to start watching Prestige TV. Yuck. I'm not intelligent enough for that. No, me neither. I'm just a dumb genre fan who likes the bright sparkly colours. Yes, we're MCU heads or whatever the Arrowverse equivalent is. Sorry, I just had to fight back a wave of contempt. Wave of vomit, perhaps. Well, I'm going to get out of the speak force and back to Angus to pick up the rest of the news. So thanks for showing up to commemorate, commiserate, celebrate the ending of the, or the upcoming ending of The Flash. Thank you for making me a part of it. I felt I wouldn't have done my duty properly if I wasn't. One more Flash podcast. When you reduce it to numbers like that, it's really not that much to deal with. Yeah. Anyway, until next time. Can't wait. And I'm back. I am out of the speed force. I told Andrew not to hurry because we've got a few months. That was really quick. It's the speed force. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah it all makes sense. It was 15 odd minutes for me, but for you, it was only a few seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it went by like that. Isn't that amazing? Another story, I toyed with the idea of bringing Chris in for this, but I figured you'd maybe just have some comments on it. Anyway, they have announced that the actor who played one of the Super Sons, he's the one without powers, in Superman and Lois, Jordan Elsass, is quitting season three of Superman and Lois, and they're going to recast the character. And he's been talking about how he's been struggling with his mental health for the past few years and has left the show for that basis. I don't know if that's a cover for some foul play that was maybe going on on set or something, I don't know. But he says that it's taking a toll on him and he's left for that reason and may quit acting as a result as well. If that's what he has to do, then... More power to him, absolutely. And from the, this isn't at all important from his point of view aspect of it, but it's going to be quite a challenge to adapt to a new actor playing this character after two seasons of someone else playing him. Yeah, it's a shame. I hope there has been no skullduggery or anything. I'm not familiar with the actor and I'm not familiar with the show, but obviously if for mental health reasons he needs to step away, then fully support that. It must be a really difficult thing to do when it's a high-pressure career like that. And also, if he's considering leaving the profession entirely, then it's obviously something that's really tough for him. Yeah, absolutely. Don't push yourself further than you can handle because that's just going to make it worse. And I do wonder if some of it has to do with the fact that his character isn't getting a lot to do, which you can hear me and Chris talk about extensively on our Superman and Lois season two podcast and on the season one podcast to be fair we talk about that in terms of there's one brother that gets more story than the other and he's the one that doesn't get as much it's not that he gets nothing to do and the stuff he gets to do is quite interesting but I often find myself commenting I wish they would push this a bit further I wish we could see where this could go and so forth so that might have something to do with it but yeah it just seems like he's having a tough time of it and has to take care of himself yeah. Just be interesting to see how they address it because you know sometimes in TV shows if you change your hair or something like that and then that's how they <laughs> <laughs> or just completely ignore it. It's normally in sitcoms they draw attention in that way. Mm-hmm. One of my favourites is in Iron Man 2 when Don Cheadle first walks in his roadie and he says, it's me, I'm here, deal with it. That's it, after that point. <laughs> There's also when Mark Ruffalo took over from Edward Norton in The Avengers, almost every line of dialogue that Banner has is reminding the audience that he is Bruce Banner. It's almost as if... <laughs> They're trying to force that association. <laughs> you just had one of those name badges. Hello, my name. 
Bruce Banner. My name is Bruce, yeah. It's like Ross and Friends. He has the two badges, Bruce, and then Dr. Banner is a second badge. <laughs> Another bit of CW news that I just discovered as I was reading this article about poor old Jordan here. The CW are widening their programming scope to include sitcoms and procedurals. Begins testing outside studio deals with the Hatpin Society from executive producer Rachel Bloom. So the CW has had its majority share bought out by a company called Nexstar, and then they did some analysis that apparently revealed that the average viewer of the CW is about 58 years old. (laughs) Which I initially questioned, and then I thought about it, because I'm only thinking from a primetime point of view, stuff like The Flash, or Superman and Lois, or Riverdale, or whatever else they show at primetime. And primetime is about four hours a day during weekdays. So what's on the rest of the time? So I spoke to someone I know who's American, and they said during the day on the CW, it's stuff like game shows and soaps and things like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. your average viewer might be much older because the primetime audience won't be tuning in until like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock. Until their shows are on, yeah. So it's a bit like back in the day if you were off sick from school or something like that, or it was the school holidays and you'd watch Countdown. And that's not what you watch <laughs> at night because it's not on at night. That kind of stuff. That's yeah. the way I picture it obviously much bigger and then i think it depends what your local affiliate might screen as well the way it works in the u.s is you have a local version of that network mm-hmm. so they might show local news programs or local talk shows things like that so they're going to address this demographic then seems so which makes me wonder if my show's days are numbered things like Lucy Brown and lois and stargirl and things i wonder if that's going to be the end of them after whatever commitment they currently have runs out well if they're still Raking in the dollars, I see no reason to <laughs> to stop. Well, I don't know. I don't know that they make that much money. The CW has always ran at a loss, apparently, but they've just accepted oh, it. Oh, really? Because of the footprint it has, I suppose, in terms of the type of programming it makes. Mm-hmm. It's these big business financial analyst stuff that I have no scope to comment on. I'm just worried that I'm going to have nothing to watch in terms of stuff I like to watch in the near future. <laughs> but at the top, we were saying there's quite often too much. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a stuff I really like to watch, my appointment viewing stuff, <laughs> stuff like Superman and Lois and The Flash for some reason, even though I've not liked it for years. <laughs> I have a feeling that there would be something to fill those gaps if those went away. Well, who knows? There would have to be. The future of the website is in question in terms of all these shows disappearing, actually. What am I going to be doing after all these things? But basically, Nexstar have said that under the new ownership, the CW would be going for broader and cheaper programming, including syndicated fare acquisitions, with the goal to make the network profitable by 2025. On the original scripting programming side, in addition to the CW's signature genre shows and teen soaps, which the network intends to keep doing, which I think in brackets, until the current financial commitment runs out, says just not as many as well. It plans to broaden its slate by adding procedurals and other older skewing dramas, as well as half-hour comedies, including multi-camera sitcoms. Because we all know that multi-camera sitcoms are really popular right now. (laughs) And then they talk about some of the demographics. The CW's current slate of shows like Riverdale, All-American, The Flash, Target Viewers, and the 18-34 demographic. Wow, I'm right at the end of that demographic. That means I'm almost too old for The Flash. The average CW linear viewer is 58 years old. Yeah, you might have to get on board with the local news and game show. (laughs) Maybe so. The network's new programming strategy is looking to embrace these older linear viewers and trying to expand that pool. The network has done that occasionally with specials such as the Walton's holiday movies as well as the Critics' Choice Awards. (laughs) Procedural dramas. I'm not a big fan of procedural dramas. Although you could argue The Flash is a procedural drama. Yeah, if you find the right procedural drama, then I'm sure you're interested. 
Yeah, as in they have a case to solve every week and they have to use superpowers to solve it. The procedural. One of the first projects that will test the new strategy is the Hatpin Society, a period drama written and executive produced by Elisa Aaron and executive produced by Crazy Ex-Girlfriend co-creator, executive producer and star Rachel Bloom. Set in 1909 New York City, it centres on a motley legion of suffragists who fight for equality by day and vigilante justice by night, seeking revolution through any means necessary. That does sound like a CW show. <laughs> There you go. You got some more content. It pulled me back in. <laughs> it's an interesting transitional period for me because of a lot of the things I watch just disappearing at the same mm. time. As much as Andrew and I will celebrate the end of The Flash, it will be the end of an era because it's the end of the Arrowverse. Because Superman and Lois is not in the Arrowverse, as they've announced. So any more commentary on that? <laughs> I've said all I have to say about the CW. Fair enough. Let's move on to more miscellaneous news then. Let's start up with something you might be interested in. And this is another article from last month that I forgot to put on the list last month. But again, it's something you're interested in potentially. So here we go. The upcoming college-themed spin-off of The Boys finally has his name. And it's going to be called Gen V. The cast of the series made the announcement on Friday, which was back in July. It's going to be a roller coaster, says star Lizzie Broadway says in the clip. It's going to be filled with blood, guts and everything else. Gen V is set at America's only college exclusive base for superheroes run by Vought. According to the show's official logline, Gen V is an irreverent R-rated series that explores the lives of hormonal competitive soups as they put their physical, sexual and moral boundaries to the test. Competing for the best contracts in the best cities, it's part college show, part Hunger Games, with all the heart, satire, and raunch of the boys. Two of the cast are Lizzie Broadway and Jazz Sinclair, who will be playing characters in this. So what do you think of this concept? To begin with, I wasn't massively enthused. I think we've already touched on the magical school setting earlier in this episode, but hearing that it will be R-rated gives me hope that it can live up to the boys. I've got a slight concern that the boys, the original, has great characters, some of whom want to behave like adolescents. Quite a lot of bad behaviour from them. So I don't know if seeing younger soups is going to be much more of a spotlight on that kind of thing. I don't know where else there is to go. I might give it a chance. I'm usually not great with spin-offs, but I do like The Boys. It's probably my favourite show that's been on TV in the last couple of years, so I have to have faith and give it a go. My issue with this is it doesn't seem it has any countering to the what sounds like group of awful people trying to do things. The thing about the boys that stops it from being alienating to me is the fact that you have characters in there who are a bit more virtuous, who are mm -hmm. running counter to whatever the prevailing method and thought process is. So you've got characters like Annie, for example. She's battling against that and her role in the show is to try and navigate that in ways that help her bring it down. Most yep. of the other characters are pretty awful, though, in terms of the choices they make. <laughs> and things. I think she's the only one that escapes more unscathed than the others. She's the only one that's actually worth investing in, in terms of helping her succeed. Everyone else seems to be as corrupt as everybody else, just in different ways. Whereas this just sounds like it's going to be wall-to-wall -wall corruption, which makes it sound quite exhausting to me. So that's a concern where I am, because I hate watching these things where everybody's just being terrible and it's just reinforcing how terrible the world is, especially in superhero stuff. Mm -hmm. You need someone that's better than that, or I do anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like what I like about the boys and I like it in that context. And I don't know if I need more. <laughs> it's strange to not want more of something that you like, but what I'm saying is for this to be good, it would have to be what I already like about the boys, but then I don't want it just to be the same thing because that's redundant. Have you seen season three all the way through as of yet? Yes. There was things in season three that I just found completely disgusting. 
and have no desire to ever watch them again. So I'm worried that it's maybe heading that way anyway. It's heading to that inaccessible point for me. Mm. Although I don't know how much longer it plans to run, really. It seems that they're building up to an ending now, which makes sense if they're doing a spin-off. Yeah. Our parent show is going to be finishing soon, so we want to keep this going because it's successful. We shall see. That brings us to our next bit of news. Jeffrey Dean Morgan is going to be appearing in The Boys Season 4, which is significant because he's previously worked with Eric Kripke, the showrunner, when he was in Supernatural. And he played Dean Winchester, played by Jensen Ackles' dad, in Supernatural as well. So that's another nice bit of meta casting. There's no news on who he'll be playing, but it's stated that he's a super fan of the show, so they're talking about getting him in it, and he's going to be in it. That's good news. I like Jeffrey Dean Morgan. He's also in that film Fall I talked about earlier for like one scene mm. or two scenes. Yeah, I'm not massively familiar with him. I only really know him from Watchmen, which is interesting that he's in another off-brand superhero project. Interesting that he has that pedigree. I'll be there day one for season four. I'm guessing you gave up on The Walking Dead before he appeared. Yes, I had seen that he'd appeared in it, but I did not see him in it. He was in another superhero-ish property, although it was more a comic book adaptation rather than a superhero thing, called The Losers. It rings a vague bell, but I don't think I've seen it. It's pretty good. It was DC's answer to the A-Team, essentially. And the film was very A-Team-like. It came out just before the A-Team film, actually, as well. (laughs) What a coincidence. Crazy, isn't it? Let's move on. We are finally getting that long-threatened Roadhouse reboot. Jake Gyllenhaal is going to be leading the film, but also Conor McGregor is going to be making his acting quote-unquote debut in this movie i have seen roadhouse once and it's one of those cheesy patrick swayze vehicles isn't it yeah uh much loved cult classic there are so many remakes and reboots i don't feel like this is necessary but it's gonna happen it doesn't take away the fact that the original still exists so i can watch that whenever i want i like it it's not a central text to me if i ever see this i'll give it a chance i won't be rushing to watch it i'm not desperate to see a roadhouse remake and i don't really know much about conor mcgregor other than i share your expectation of his acting (laughs) so if i ever see it i'll give it a chance but i don't expect it will live up to the original i don't really mind i'm sure some people will be worked up about it i'm not it's going to be made by amazon and it will scream on prime whenever they finish making it for those who don't know what Roadhouse is, this version is former UFC fighter played by Gyllenhaal takes a job as a bouncer at a rough-and-tumble roadhouse in the Florida Keys, but soon discovers that not everything is what it seems in this tropical paradise. When I first read that he was going to be the lead, I was thinking, really? And then I remembered he did that film where he played a boxer, so mm. yeah, why not? Was Patrick Swayze's not exactly your typical action guy, is he? Or he wasn't. I don't know, he was bit of a chameleon he filled many different roles he was effective enough in roadhouse is a cult classic remembered fondly by a lot of people that's true next couple of news bits are about video game adaptations we have a director for the netflix adaptation of bioshock francis lawrence is going to be directing it he did some of the hunger games ones or maybe all of them i'm not sure michael green is going to be writing the script and that's all it really says have you played bioshock I have attempted to dabble with Bioshock. I've only (laughs) scratched the surface. Have you played through them? I've played some of it, but I know what the twist is in the first game, and I'm not going to tell listeners what that is, but it's quite an interesting one. It's maybe one that I'll watch someone play at some point, because I remember getting quite frustrated with it. One of the mechanics is you've got these resurrection pods, so if you die, you resurrect your nearest resurrection pod. And all you have to do is walk past it to activate it, that kind of thing. You could just have a checkpoint, but they have an in-universe explanation for it. So you essentially get cloned in this pod and you come back. I remember fighting one of the big daddies and all I had was a pipe. And I would go up and hit it a couple of times, die, 
run back, hit it a couple of times, die. <laughs> so it got quite frustrating me for that point. But someone I know that played all the way through it told me it was one of those games where you start off being really underpowered to the point that it's really frustrating and then you get over this hill and then suddenly you're unstoppable. That's maybe where I've fallen off with it before as well because there's a lot to like about it. I've heard with some really good things. Some people are really enthusiastic about them, but I've just never managed to commit to sticking with it. It's that grind, isn't it? It's doing the grind. That's the hard part. Yeah, it's an interesting setting, but I think that the way that you encounter it in the game, and because it's first person, it's all happening to you. I was finding it difficult to imagine how they would manage to achieve that in a film, because you're kind of discovering a whole underwater city in the first one anyway. You need to kind of set the scene in the movie rather than allow the audience to kind of discover it the way that you would in an interactive experience. We'll see how it unfolds. People adapting it have to be smarter than just simply throwing in whatever people liked about the game because you have to approach it from a different way. I know that in the game you're playing a character rather than it being a self-insert for you. Mm-hmm. So it's happening to a character, but you're seeing through their eyes. Yeah, and the writer that they've got listed is responsible for Jungle Cruise and the remake of Death on the Nile. So that doesn't fill me with... <laughs> confidence adapting a fairground ride and something that's already been done a couple of times it was a book and a film that doesn't really feel like you have all the tools there but maybe you do because you've already been adapting stuff anyway death in the nile is widely considered to be rubbish jungle cruise i don't know what the general consensus is on it but i liked it it's not as good as Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, I don't like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, so I thought it was better than Pirates of the Caribbean. It does ask a lot of its audience, so you have to accept The Rock as a romantic lead, which is very difficult. Which has proved impossible in every <laughs> other film. Has been yeah, but we're going to do it in this one, apparently. The other one is Netflix are doing a Horizon Zero Dawn series, and they have confirmed that Aloy, who is the protagonist in the game, will be the protagonist of the series. So what they're doing is they're remaking the story of the first game, or at least the first game, into this TV series. The fact it's a TV series is something I find a bit more encouraging, in the same way that I think The Last of Us will be better than if it was a film, because you've got time. You can tell the story over time. It's a huge and expansive and amazing world, which might be cool to see built on whatever budget Netflix throw at it. And that's basically it at this point. Have you played it? Yes, although I didn't fully get into it because, again, it has that skill curve. Mm-hmm. As in the start of the game is really difficult because of how underpowered you are. And then imagine you turn a corner and you're unstoppable. <laughs> at some point and I never got to the point where I was unstoppable I kept getting to points where infiltrate this base full of robot creatures and you just get killed and I remember repeating the same fight over and over again I haven't played it and something about the setting or just the look never really appealed to me that much I'm willing to listen to arguments that it's great or that it plays really well but I never got around to it although based on my history in a few years time who knows yeah <laughs> It's one of those things that I keep meaning to pick up and, and finish and, and I never do. No, I didn't dislike it. And again, maybe it's one of those, just watch a Let's Play. You can watch someone who's really good at it. Mm. It's a fine looking barbecue pit. Why doesn't mine look like that type mentality? Why can't I play it this well? But doing this TV show, the Umbrella Academy creator Steve Blackman is going to be doing it. Michelle Lovrata, who is also working on the Umbrella Academy. So that pedigree seems good. People seem to like the Umbrella Academy. I haven't seen it, but I know Aaron really likes it. Could be good. Who knows? Could be good. I don't know. A far-flung future post-apocalyptic world filled with robot dinosaurs. Could be interesting to see. 
on the small screen. Moving on, there is going to be a Ferris Bueller's Day Off spin-off from the Cobra Kai creators. Sam and Victor's Day Off will follow the same adventure of the titular valets who took the Ferrari Joyride and the Matthew Broderick starrer. These characters are in the original film and they're just going to be telling their story of what happened to them at the same time. So it's a parallel spin-off thing. I've got no interest in this at all. (laughs) I think those characters are fine in the film and beyond that I have just no desire to see (laughs) what they got up to. It's weird because I was thinking about this and kind of comparing it to a Roadhouse remake. We're resurrecting properties from the 80s and trying to squeeze some more money out of them i think i would rather watch a roadhouse remake than watch a spin-off about those characters <laughs> i just don't think there's anything there to build anything from i suppose if it's built on the same principles as cobra kai which is again something i haven't seen that people like a lot then there might be something there yeah i haven't seen it either i have heard good things and so i, I trust that the people who are making it know what they're doing it's just that there's so many other things about the ferris bueller universe for want of a better (laughs) word the setting of ferris bueller on the day off there are so many other things i would want to see before those two guys yeah that's fair i don't remember ferris bueller's day off that well to be honest i have seen it but it's not one of my favorites that i have to go back to every now and again i like it i don't feel like i have to watch it frequently but when i do i enjoy it what's next the breakfast club but from the perspective of the parents the reason that they're not in the film more than they are is because we're watching the good stuff i don't need to see (laughs) sam and victor driving a ferrari yeah oh well never mind that's that next up we have kathy yan who will executive produce and direct the live action series paprika based on the excuse me while i butcher this yasutaka sutsi novel of the same name for Amazon. Paprika is a character-driven sci-fi series with a mind-bending narrative centering around a technology that allows us to invade people's dreams. That's all it really says about it. She was the director of the Birds of Prey movie, as in the Harley Quinn-led movie. Sounds interesting on the surface. She seems like she knows what she's doing. Yeah, I would echo those sentiments. I don't have a whole lot more to add. I haven't seen Birds of Prey. I don't know the material of Paprika. But yeah, I'd agree. It sounds like an interesting concept. And this isn't in the article, but it was something that someone else told me. There was an anime adaptation of it some years ago that was excellent, apparently. Mm. Check that out if you like anime. I guess. Next up is Peacock, which is another streaming service we don't get in the UK. They've handed a straight-to-series order to Hysteria, with an exclamation mark. A coming-of-age satanic panic drama thriller from writer Matthew Scott Cain, Dungeons & Dragons filmmakers John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, and so on. Hysteria, when a beloved varsity quarterback disappears during the satanic panic of the late 1980s, a struggling high school heavy metal band of outcasts realise they can capitalise on the town's sudden interest in the occult by building a reputation as a satanic metal band, until a bizarre series of murders, kidnappings, and reported supernatural activity triggers a leather-studied witch hunt that leads directly back to them. There you go. What do you think? Well, I think in that article it mentions similarity to some of the latest season of Stranger Things. There was a bit of that with the Eddie Munson character. He was blamed for a lot of stuff that was going on in the town because he was into rock music or metal music and D&D and all the things that people thought were evil back in the Satanic Panic. So yeah, I can see why there's an interest in those sorts of themes. Also makes me think a bit of Detroit Rock City. I don't know if you've seen that film. It's probably from sometime in the 90s because it's got edward furlong as one of the main characters oh, in it. but that was a similar sort of thing where the, the guys in that were really into kiss but their puritanical mothers wanted to stop them from going to a show because it was all tied up in satan worship and that sort of thing i mean it kind of feels like one of these sorts of things i like the topics 
well enough, but I don't know if it's just a build off of the groundwork that Stranger Things has put down. Worth a look, maybe? I don't know. What do you think? I feel like it's not going to be my speed, to be honest. As you say, it seems to be capitalising on the popularity of Stranger Things. Let's do this 80s but weird type aesthetic and play around with that and play around with a cultural touchstone, I suppose, a moment in culture in that way. Yeah, I mean, it could have a good soundtrack if that's what those guys are going to focus on. Yeah, It'll allow some washed up artists to get a lot of royalties (laughs) from Spotify. Yeah. But not as much money as Spotify, mate, because every time you play a song on Spotify, you give them a fraction of a penny or something like that. I don't know what the exact cost is, but it's one of those, if you want to make money, don't put your music on streaming sites or streaming platforms. (laughs) Okay, moving on. The next one is Breaking Bad alum Kristen Ritter is returning to AMC as star and executive producer of Orphan Black Echoes, a spinoff of Orphan Black. This one takes place in the near future and explores the scientific manipulation of human existence. Following a group of women, one of them played by Ritter, as they weave their way into each other's lives and embark on a thrilling journey, unravelling the mystery of their identity and uncovering a wrenching story of love and betrayal. Ritter's Lucy is a woman with an unimaginable origin story. Well, it's going to have to be imaginable if someone came up with it, trying to find her place in the world. <laughs> Anna Fishko is creator, writer, showrunner and executive producer of this show, with John Fawcett, who co-created the original series, on as director and executive producer. I haven't seen Orphan Black, but I keep feeling like I should. And this numbers among that, I suppose it's something I probably should watch at some point. Is Tatiana Maslany in it? Not the spin-off, I don't think. Not the spin-off. I think she might be in Orphan Black. Oh, she is. Yeah, she's the Orphan Black. Yeah. I don't know what the Orphan Black refers to, but she's the lead... And she plays like 12 characters or something like that. Okay. Because I thought that you might be interested in going back now that you're watching She-Hulk. Yeah. I know she's celebrated for the fact that she's able to successfully play against herself. As I say, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Jessica Jones either, which a lot of people probably associate with Kristen Ritter, but I loved what she did in Breaking Bad. I really liked that character and that storyline. Jane. But because I haven't watched Orphan Black, I don't see myself rushing to check out the spin-off. Yeah, I like Kristen Ritter. I first encountered her in Veronica Mars. She was in season two of that. And she also appeared in the film that got kickstarted. She was Mm. in that too. And Jessica Jones, which I liked one season off and haven't seen the third. Season two broke me. It was so bad. I've (laughs) seen some of Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, but it's one of those sitcoms that I just didn't find funny, so I didn't watch very much of it. That could be an issue. It seemed to be riding the coattails of James Van Der Beek, just trying to play a... I don't even know if it's a dialed-up version of himself. Maybe he's just playing himself. I don't know. It's not very good. I didn't like it. The joke in every episode was, oh, she's trying to do something evil. And it's, oh, no, she was trying to help me. That's in every episode. Or every episode that I've seen anyway. <laughs> but she's good, certainly. She was good in Breaking Bad. Her unceremonious ending in Breaking Bad was... Quite shocking. Yeah. I won't say what it was in case people haven't seen it. <laughs> Orphan Black is one of those shows I always mean to watch. I just need to be sat in front of the TV with a playlist that I can't mess with and just watch stuff. Clockwork Orange style. That's how I catch it up. Matchsticks in your eyes. Exactly. Let's move on. MGM have lost the rights to the Tomb Raider film franchise. So the planned sequel or... Maybe it wasn't a speak home, maybe it was just another one with Alicia Vikander has been shelved and the rights are now being shopped around and a new lead is being looked for. And that's about it. This really surprises me that they haven't been able to turn Tomb Raider, of all things, into a successful film franchise. It should be a home run, surely. I know the Angelina Jolie one, the first one anyway, did pretty well and then the sequel, Mm -hmm. 
well, it wasn't very good, apparently. I've not seen it even, so it didn't do as well. I like the Alicia Vikander one, though. Yeah, and it's quite close to the newer games as well. I have to assume that someone will spin something out of this because I believe Uncharted, the film adaptation of the game, did well enough to probably make anyone who wants to make money off of adventure game adaptations make their eyes turn into dollar signs and their tongues roll out <laughs> of their heads. Uncharted's not very good though, that's the problem. I don't understand why it did well. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be good, it just has to make money. It's funny because you look at Tom Holland and you see him as 15-year-old Peter Parker and you're like, that tracks, yeah. But then you look at him as young adult Nathan Drake and you think, nah. There's a scene in it where he's working in a bar and you're sitting there thinking, are you old enough to be working in here? That went through my head during that scene. And then at that point, it completely lifted me out of the film because I can't buy him in the role. As good as he is in it, and as good as his physicality is and stuff, I'm just thinking, he's a little boy, even though he's like 26 years old. <laughs> the funniest thing is, and I was made aware of this recently, Haley Steinfeld, Tom Holland, and Florence Pugh are all the same age, and they're all in the MCU playing radically different ages. <laughs> Florence Pugh, you have to assume she's playing roughly her age mm-hmm. as her version of Black Widow. The Kate Bishop character is stated to be 22, and Peter Parker's about 16, 17. Well, some people can just get away with it. Yeah, it's just really funny to think about. But Tomb Raider, I don't know. What direction do you take it in? I know there's a reboot game on the way again. They're rebooting the games again, so depends what direction those reboots go in. I feel like it's now time to look back around to the larger-than-life Lara Croft from the original games. I feel like that's the direction they'll go in now rather than the more grounded, real survivor aspect of the more recent games. And I don't think either is better than the other, to be honest. I think that there's room for both, and I think that both work really well. Yeah, I think there's plenty of material for them to mine or for them to raid, so uh, I expect it will happen as and when. And there's an animated film that may or may not still be in the works that Hayley Atwell was supposed to do the voice for. Whether that's still happening or not, I don't know. Anyway, we'll see what happens in that space. The next news story is about how Tom Cruise apparently has plans Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie are plotting a new musical, action thriller, and more while trying to get Mission Impossible 8 finished, which seems to be the longest gestating production that you can think of. Cruise and McQuarrie are hatching three new film projects. One is an original song and dance style musical they'll craft as a star vehicle for Cruise. What was that one he was in? Rock of Ages, was it called? Yes, I think so. I've not seen that, but apparently it's awful. I don't know if it's because of his musical talent or not. No, I don't know. I haven't seen it. They're also setting up another original action film with franchise potential. How long is he planning to do this? He's approaching 60. I suppose if Stallone can still do it, then so can Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. And they are also fixated on Les Grossman, the character from Tropic Thunder, who may get a spin-off. I've only seen Tropic Thunder once, and I remember it took me about half the film to realise it was him. It was a fine joke in Tropic Thunder, which was a long time ago. I don't really see why Les Grossman deserves a whole project. Not so sure about that one. No. The other two might be interesting though. Tom Cruise in a musical. Can you buy him as a musical lead? I don't know. Not so sure. There's no end to what Tom Cruise seems to be capable of, so I guess. Apparently he did the law of training as he does for all his roles to be in Rock of Ages, but that's maybe one boundary he might not be able to cross. Was there not that joke about Tom Cruise whereas if he doesn't know how to do something, he will go away and spend about a year and become the best at it? Yeah. It's just the way he is, I suppose. Yeah, he has plans. He works well with Christopher McQuarrie, so I think that's in good hands, to be honest, whatever they plan to do. 
Yeah. The next thing is quite interesting. Outlander is getting a prequel series and it has got its title. It's going to be called Outlander Blood of My Blood and it will focus on the love story between Jamie Fraser's parents. I find this quite interesting because one of the things I really like about Outlander, and I haven't seen it in a couple of seasons, so I kind of fell off the wagon with that, but I do plan to go back to it one of these days. But one of the things I liked about it was its approach to time travel and about how time travel was central to its premise. This seems like it'll have nothing to do with time travel. It's just going to be a period piece. Yeah, so are they just looking to get the period atmosphere? It does seem strange if the original obviously leans into the time travel stuff and that presumably is where a lot of the appeal comes from as well as this character out of time i'm not really sure then about where the draw is for something that's set before that with no time travel unless there will be a time traveler character kicking about somewhere yeah which isn't impossible i suppose but yeah it just seems like this is a period piece set in the same universe which doesn't interest me as much as the parent show because you won't have any of that interaction with well not the present day but the present day of the time traveling character Mm-hmm. Moving on, we have a couple of bit species on the monster verse Godzilla vs. Kong 2. We have a synopsis for that. It will apparently explore the origins of the monster verse. The movie will see Kong and Godzilla uniting against a new threat coming from Hollow Earth, as the entitled sequel promises to explore the origins of the Titans and Skull Island. It will be another team up. They work together against this mysterious threat, blah, blah, blah. Adam Wingard is directing it again. Rebecca Hall's going to be back in it. Brian Tyree Henry will be in it. Kayla Hottle, Dan Stevens is going to be in it, Fala Chen, Alex Ferns, and Rachel House. It's out on March 15th, 2024, which doesn't seem like all that long away. They're quietly bubbling away in the background. Out of the MonsterVerse movies, I have liked one of them. Is this one going to be another one that I like? Probably not. <laughs> it's got everything in a sequel, I guess, teaming up, exploring more mythology. I'm sure words like Hollow Earth will excite some people. <laughs> <laughs> not massively anticipating this your first experience of imax was godzilla wasn't it <laughs> how can you remember that <laughs> i don't know i just have a good memory for weird information <laughs> i don't know if i would have been able to remember that it's added to my superpower of supersonic selective hearing <laughs> i remember because we went to see it in imax and you and natalie both commented that you'd never done imax before well there you go back in 2014 that was a few haircuts ago have you seen any of the other MonsterVerse movies, though? I've seen Kong Skull Island. That's the one I like. I think the Godzilla with Aaron Taylor-Johnson. So you've seen the first two in this universe, then? Yes. I don't think I've seen any of the others. Godzilla King of the Monsters is, to my mind, really boring. It's got the same problem the first Godzilla movie has, in the sense that it's just full of uninteresting people standing around in sterile-looking rooms full of screens talking, instead of showing monsters fighting each other, whatever else is going on. And Godzilla vs. Kong is similar to that as well. And it just has this really dull collection of subplots that just are rubbish. Skull Island is the only film in this franchise that I actually like. And I liked Skull Island just because of how over-the-top and ridiculous and fun it was. I feel like it knew what kind of film it was trying to be. Yeah, it was just an in-your-face action movie, and that's what it needed to be. Yeah. Absolutely. The next thing is connected to this. There's a King Kong live action series in the works at Disney Plus from Stephanie Folsom, James Wan's Atomic Monster and Disney branded TV. So basically what's happened here is that James Wan has decided I don't want to work with Warner Brothers on this anymore. I'm leaving them and I'm taking it to Disney. So he's helping Disney steal King Kong from Warner Brothers. 
But this one's written by Paper Girls creator Stephanie Folsom. King Kong is a serialised action-adventure drama that brings the classic monster story into the modern age. With a return to Skull Island and the dawn of a new Kong, the series will explore the mythology of King Kong's origin story and the supernatural mysteries of his home. So it probably won't be connected to the monster verse. It just sounds like it's maybe connected to the original film or just connected on a conceptual level. What I took from this is that if you're on Disney, you can call him King Kong. <laughs> if you're not, you just have to say Kong. Kong, but he's a king. But we don't call him King Kong. <laughs> Prince Kong. <laughs> I do wonder how all that works. It does say in this article, there's a 90-year-old character with an entangled web of rights. Mm-hmm. So he most recently featured in the legendary Warner Brothers Monsterverse, which only uses the Kong part of the name. Doesn't say why. And there was a Netflix anime one called Skull Island, which he was also in. I guess he's up for grabs. I mean, it's not long enough for Kong to be public record. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows which elements of the ownership of King or just Kong <laughs> are owned by who and for how long. Yeah, very crazy. Move on anyway, get away from monsters. The Russo brothers are gearing up for their next project called The Electric State and done some casting for it. Michelle Yeoh being one of them. Michelle Yeoh, we've said it before, she is having a moment, isn't she? She is appearing in so many things. Also in this will be Stanley Tucci and Jason Alexander, Brian Cox from Succession, Jenny Slate will be in it as well, and... There'll be some CGI characters in the film to be voicing. Millie Bobby Brown is in it because of course she is. And Chris Pratt because of course he is. <laughs> they were previously announced though. Nothing's known about who they're playing. The film is an adaptation of the graphic novel of the same name. The science fiction film will have a retro futuristic setting and will focus on an orphan teenager played by Millie Bobby Brown who travels with robot and a drifter. That's not very well written. Through the American West in search of her younger brother. It's robots in the old west. I feel like we've seen that before. Probably in Doctor Who. But yes, you're right. The ubiquitous Millie Bobby Brown and the ubiquitous Chris Pratt. <laughs> They're going to be in more stuff. Yeah. And Michelle Yeoh. So good for her. And she's ageless and very good. So yeah, that's good. Yeah, she's really lapping up the work while she can get it, isn't she? <laughs> good for her. The concept, I can take it or leave it at this point. It doesn't sound... On the surface, hugely interesting, but we'll see. Yes, I would agree with that. Next up, Ryan Gosling is in talks to reteam with Barbie's Margot Robbie for new Ocean's Eleven film at Warner Brothers. All we know is that there's going to be a reboot of Ocean's Eleven or another Ocean's Eleven film that may or may not be connected to the ones that have already been out. And Margot Robbie will be in it, and now Ryan Gosling might be in it. Well, we know a little bit about it, actually. It's going to be set in Europe in the 1960s. That's it. Ryan Gosling and stuff. People like Ryan Gosling. I sometimes like him, sometimes don't. (laughs) Yeah, I think the 60s is an interesting setting. I know that that article referred to the Ocean's franchise. I don't think I ever thought of it as being a franchise. Well, there's three of them in a spin-off, so... Yeah, I know technically you probably could refer to it as that, but that just makes it sound a lot more sinister. (laughs) But then once you get to the point of rebooting and retooling, then yeah, we've got ourselves a franchise, people. It's in itself a reboot, or a remake. Yes, exactly. It's probably going to be cool and stylish and all the things that the Oceans movies usually are. And like I say, the 60s is a good setting for that. So yeah, I could see it doing really well. Do you think Ryan Gosling will be playing the talkative character he plays or the not-so-talkative character that he plays? Those seem to be his two speeds, doesn't it? He either never shuts up or never says anything. It would have to be talkative. Yeah, I'm going to go talkative on this one. Might just be like Brad Pitt and he's eating in every scene. Well, that could be that, yeah. I haven't seen Ocean's Eleven in a while, actually. And I haven't ever seen 
Ocean's 13. Ocean's 12 kind of put me off. Ocean's 11 is really good. We had that on DVD back when DVDs came in cardboard cases. <laughs> me and my sister just watched the hell out of that movie and it's just a fun time. It's really well done. It's really slick. The music's good. The cast's good. So I, I've got a really soft spot for the original. Well, not the original, but the most recent Ocean's 11. I've always had a bit of time for the series or the franchise as it is now. I'm open to a, a 60s reboot, but... I guess because I like the 2001 or whenever it was version. I think that one's always going to have a special place for me. Yeah, and Ocean 12 has a moment where the character played by Julia Roberts has to pretend that she's actually Julia Roberts. Yes, to Bruce Willis playing himself. When that's in your script, you should realise that you have problems. Yeah, that's dumb. At that point, it's not about your skill in pulling off the heist, is it? It's just you're lucky enough to have someone that looks exactly like someone that's famous. (laughs) I didn't watch 13 because of that. Because I felt like it would just be more dumbness. Mm-hmm. I did watch 8, though. I think I've seen that once. With Sandra Bullock playing George Clooney's sister. Yeah. And Anne Hathaway's in it, and some other people. I just don't think any of them have been as smart or as slick as Ocean's Eleven, so it's just been diminishing returns. Oh yeah, it's, we came up with a really clever heist for the first one, and then we made more of them. Yeah, never matched it. Yeah, we'll see what this one's like. It's already got good talent attached anyway, Margot Robbie. Obviously everything that she does gets attention, so I'll see it, I guess, at the cinema, probably. Next up, we have Francis Ford Coppola's Megalopolis. Aubrey Plaza has been cast alongside Adam Driver, who was already cast. This is the one that Coppola is directing and independently financing from his own pocket. And his own script. So studios won't take this. I can afford it. I'll be doing it. The budget will just be under a hundred million. That'll... Imagine just having a hundred million lying around. <laughs> that would be nice. All it says is the fate of Rome haunts a modern world, unable to save its own social problems in the epic story of political ambition, genius, and conflicted love. I like Adam Driver sometimes. I like Aubrey Plaza most of the time when I see her and stuff. It's also got Forrest Whitaker, Natalie, Emmanuel, John Voigt, and Lawrence Fishburne. I like a lot of those people. I like Francis Ford Coppola. Is this an original idea? This isn't an adaptation of anything? Yeah, I think it's his idea. Okay, well that makes me even more enthusiastic about it. We've got something original here. So yeah, I like the people involved. That's encouraging. I'll wait to find out more. And the idea of a director just sticking their hand in their pocket and financing a hundred million dollar movie. Yeah. <laughs> Good money if you've got it, I suppose. On Paramount Plus, we are getting a Fatal Attraction TV series. Amanda Peet has been cast and she joins the previously announced Lizzie Kaplan and Joshua Jackson. The series is described as a deep dive reimagining of the film that will explore fatal attraction and the themes of marriage and infidelity through the lens of modern attitudes towards strong women, personality disorders and coercive control. Pete will star as Beth Gallagher, a loyal wife, loving mother and successful small business owner whose world unravels when her husband Dan's, played by Jackson, indiscretion threatens to destroy their life together. Anne Archer played Beth in the film, for which she earned both an Academy Award and Golden Globe nomination. I've never seen Fatal Attraction, but it seems like something that you don't necessarily need to turn into a TV show, but who knows? Possibly not. I have seen it. I'm not massively familiar with it, but I think it comes from that group of 80s, 90s adult erotic thrillers that we don't get as many of now just because they're not tiny indie movies or they're not massive big budget studio movies so i'm kind of enthused by the sort of subject matter being utilized again the fact that it's fatal attraction and not something else is a bit weird but because it's something a bit different i'm encouraged by that and it's got josh jackson in it (laughs) 
Yeah, I like Joshua Jackson. I watched Fringe and he was in that. And I have seen all of Dawson's Creek. <laughs> what about the Mighty Ducks? Now we're talking. Yes, I have seen the Mighty Ducks, but not in a long, long time. Oh. Yeah, I don't watch it every weekend like you do. <laughs> How would I keep up my ranking of which duck is the best? You know? I've got to revisit it every week. <laughs> Just to see if the you of this week agrees with the you of last week. Yeah, you know, sometimes I disagree with myself. On a rare occasion. You should start a journal of your Chronicles of Mighty Ducks. That's what it could be called, Chronicles of Mighty Ducks. <laughs> it's a podcast series right there. Oh yeah, deep dive on when Adam Banks left the Hawks for the Ducks. Is there a Mighty Ducks Minute podcast? There must be. I think there probably is. I probably looked into, <laughs> <laughs> into that before thinking about themes. This was years ago when other podcasts were mooted. Uh, and now you've got a stranglehold on Teen Wolf Minute. Oh yeah, I'm just squatting on those social media accounts. You're stopping other people from doing it, even though you've never recorded a minute of it. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Because Disney now own Fox, or what used to be Fox, they have looked at the Planet of the Apes franchise and thought, hmm, we can make more of those. So they're doing that. Owen Teague has been tapped to play the lead primate in the newest film in the iconic franchise. Wes Ball is taking over directing duties for the property, which hopes to start production before year's end. Not much is known about this latest instalment, as they've kept the plot details under lock and key. The property has been a high priority for the studio, going back to when Disney first acquired them. I'm not surprised. Made it clear that the plan was to get the next Planet of the Apes pick in development as soon as possible. If I was to guess, I would say it's going to be more of a remake of the original, as in the astronauts coming back to Earth and finding out. Mm. But how do you tell that story now? Because the twist is so ingrained in pop culture. I know that Tim Burton had a go. Mm -hmm. didn't really work. I think he just revealed it was Earth pretty early on in the film. Right. Yeah, so everything I was saying before about original ideas or genres that we haven't had enough of recently, it's kind of the opposite of that with this news. I didn't think I knew who Owen Teague was, but I, I believe I've seen him in It, probably part one. I don't know if he was in part two. Was he one of the kids in It? I think he was one of the bullies. Right. So it seems to follow that he would have been in the episode where they, well, actually, I suppose there was some young stuff in part two as well. Anyway, congratulations to him. <laughs> For playing the lead primate. So he's going to be an ape, yes. apparently. Well, are humans technically primate? This is a franchise that has been run into the ground in a way, but it was run into the ground so long ago that by the time that they did the apes movies that Andy Serkis was involved in, enough time had passed for it to, let's have another crack at it. But also those three films were very different because they were about the apes rather than humans. But I know that the old franchise, there was however many films and a TV series and whatever else, possibly an animated film and, and unfortunately not a musical other than a short clip in The Simpsons. So if I had to guess, it would be, this will be the astronauts coming back to find out the Earth's overrun by apes and whether it will connect to the previous iteration that we all loved i don't know because there's no reason that it couldn't because you could do that without being explicit about it because it could be so many years later yeah you've already established that world yeah so there could just be just some nod to caesar or something like that in this but like i say about the twist because i think most of us probably knew the twist probably from the simpsons before we watched <laughs> the original film i know i was well aware of it before then oh, try mcclure they finally made a monkey out of him <laughs> So you almost have to ignore the twist. You can't do that now because you'll never surprise anybody with it. I forget what the Tim Burton film did. I know the film ended with, I think, Mark Wahlberg finding himself in what looked like present day Earth, but there was apes everywhere and police cars and stuff. Yeah, I can't really remember. I think I might have only seen it once. Yeah, but I think that film reveals that he's on Earth pretty early on anyway. Right. Because, again, there's no point. 
in mm-hmm. pretending otherwise because everybody knows. It depends what they do with it. There's not an awful lot known about it. Like I say, it's not a surprise that Disney would want to do this. You have access to this franchise, so therefore you can make this film. It makes sense. And speaking of another franchise, well, it's not even a franchise, it was just a film, but it was a comic series as well, so you could call it that. Red Sonja, the reboot or whatever it is, is going to be going ahead. It is actually in production. We have casting in the form of Matilda Lutz, Wallace Day and Robert Sheehan. Matilda Lutz, I've never seen in anything. She was in Revenge, though. Wallace Day, she was in Krypton, which is not what's listed here. Robert Sheehan's been in all sorts of things. I like Robert Sheehan. Also, an interview with him on the podcast feed you can listen to. Nice guy. Or <laughs> you seem to be for the few minutes that I spoke to him. And he's very good at what he does. Inspired by the sword and sorcery comic books of the same name, Red Sonja is based on the heroine originally created for Marvel by Robert E. Howard, same guy that invented Conan, and subsequently adapted by Roy Thomas. I think she exists in the same universe as Conan, actually. I believe so. Yeah. Well, the character describes a fearsome warrior boasting a high degree of skill with a sword. Details as to the film adaptation's plot have not been disclosed. Hannah John Kamen had previously been set as the film's lead role of Red Sonja, although she stepped aside due to scheduling conflicts, with Lutz now set to play the titular character. Day will portray her half-sister, Anissia, with she and his dragon, whoever they are. I don't remember the Arnie film well enough. <laughs> Joey Soloway, who did Transparent, whatever that is, and Tasha Hugh, Netflix's Tomb Raider, which I presume is the thing that I was talking about, the Hayley Atwell thing scripted the film. There's quite a weird Vin Diesel connection here. Two actors, one of which was in Return of Xander Cage and one that was in F9. Mm. Well, I know he likes D&D and fantasy, so maybe he's pulling the strings behind the scenes. It's been a while since he had a go at this. It's been on the cards for a long time as well. Yeah, I'm not overly familiar with any of the cast. Any of them that you've just read out, and i not particularly familiar with the source material or the original film so i won't be offended by the fact that they're making this and i'd be willing to give it a go because i think we've spoken about it before about the swords and sorcery type stuff yeah that appeals to me well arnie isn't playing conan in the red sonja film which is funny i don't remember the film that well i think i've seen it once i don't even like conan it's from that period in arnie's career where it's no no just get him playing funny tough guy cops And for our last piece, a community movie will happen. The sitcom's creator Dan Harmon has affirmed the comments coming on the heels of Cats member Alison Brie that legitimate conversations are happening about a film spin-off. Basically, it's a question of when, not if. The promise of six seasons in a movie became a rallying call for fans of the show, which debuted on NBC and finished its run with season six. So it seems to be coming to fruition. I'd be keen for that. Yeah, same here. I'd be slightly concerned just because of how long it's been. I know that there will have been bigger gaps in release of projects covering the same material, but I think that the final season, even though the last couple of seasons didn't live up to the first couple or the first few, I think that they gave it a good send-off, and I'd be a bit concerned about them undoing that. Although, on the other hand, I feel like the people that are involved are talented enough that they're going to do it justice, so... It's not as if they're going to undo what's already come before. I just think that it's a really emotional and heartwarming end to a series that means a lot to people. So yeah, it'll be good to see the movie that people have been clamouring for for a long time. The weird thing with Community is, I think it's seasons four and five were done without any of the original production team involved because they wanted to move on and then it was just decided we're going to make this anyway, whether you're here or not. And then they came back for season six. Or some of them did. Yeah, like I say, it kind of did it justice. It kind of wrapped it up nicely, but I don't think that it's in bad hands. It's not as if this is going to be a sort of bad faith (laughs) 
version of it, so I think it will be good. But in the article as well, it says it's not happening soon, so it's going to be even longer since the end of the series before we get this sort of concluding chapter. It's one of those things where you feel like almost everybody involved in it has moved on to something else by this point, and I guess they'd be returning because they want to return to it. They could have just cheaped out and did what they did with Friends or The Fresh Prince or whatever. Let's just do this glorified DVD extra roundtable cast reunion thing, which they could have easily done. But the fact that they're going to turn it into a narrative, maybe they would make fun of that. The idea of a roundtable cast reunion, but it's in-universe. Yeah, with how meta it is, I'm sure all kinds of things like that are on the roundtable. Yeah, who knows? But I wouldn't be against it. I haven't seen Community in ages, and I've only watched through it once. Worth another go-round. Yeah, it's maybe time to just put that on while I'm falling asleep at night as I do with some things just a short thing just to have on while I'm nodding off which probably doesn't do a good service there's some episodes of it that I will just go back and revisit so familiar with them but it's just one of these things I can just let wash over me because it's so good but like with Frasier yes (laughs) (laughs) which I'm sure will be getting its return before long yeah Natalie hadn't seen any of it really before and now has become obsessed with seeing the whole thing Probably not before the reboot happens, but now that that's happening, it's like there's a sort of end goal to the whole thing. I'm sure we've discussed it before, but Frasier's one of those things that when I was younger and watching Friends, I felt like I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And then as I got older, I was like, now I understand it. (laughs) Yeah, I think she's in the same place. (laughs) Okay, well, that was our last thing. And I've just had a quick look at some of the usual sources and there doesn't seem to be anything pressing. Not so far anyway. (laughs) Let's hope we make it. Let's hope we make it until the point where this podcast is released before we're scooped. But anyway, thank you for attending for your turn on the news desk. Thank you. It has been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to go through a list of things and read articles from Deadline and Variety and then comment on them. <laughs> and for me to say, I don't know anything about this. I'm not enthusiastic. It wasn't too much of that this month, I don't think, to be fair. No, there's a few things I'm looking forward to. Yeah, there we go. A few things you're, at least on paper, looking forward to. (laughs) So that was August 2022. We'll do the same next month. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you like what you heard, please do hit that subscribe button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you get your podcasts. A number of these places have the option to rate and review in-app, but particularly Apple Podcasts and Spotify both have that option. And they use a star rating system. So Angus... How many stars? It's the number of Mighty Ducks movies I wish there were. Five. That's an unusual reference you've made there, but I'll allow it. <laughs> if you want to talk to us about anything that we discussed here, or anything else really, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or you can leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod.